Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back. It's a brand new episode of Bets and Banter. My name is Liam, and I pick fights each and every week on this channel. And today we're talking UFC Noche, and we're doing it with one of our favorite friends of the show, our guy, Jewish Better, back on the program. How are you today, my brother? Buenos noches, buenos noches. Buenos noches to you. Welcome to everybody in the chat. I hope that you guys are excited. It's going down in Los Estados Unidos, but we are going to be seeing a bunch of Mexican fighters on the card. We are going to be seeing a lot of exciting fights, and this is a way above average fight night, but you don't have to shell out that pay-per-view price. Instead, we get the luxury of enjoying this one on that normal uh, you know, ESPN package, which comes through so reliably, as we know. But in any case, we got a bunch of great fights to break down. 11, we got the sharpest chat in the game rocking with us. And we're going to have a ton of listeners on audio listening to this back. So appreciate each and every one of you guys. Just want to say, as we get started here, I am very close to two goals that I've been working on, guys. 10,000 subscribers, uh, or excuse me, 10,000 followers on Twitter. I'm three away. If you guys could push me over the edge, people that are watching live, I'd really appreciate it. Very close to that goal and just about to hit it. Same thing on YouTube, guys. We are three away uh, from 2,900 subscribers. If you guys that are watching live could hit that subscribe button, it would go a long way to supporting my efforts. Now, with that being said, let's start, as we always do, on Bets and Banter with the first fight of the night. We've got Josephine Knutson taking on Marnik Mann. This is kind of the hodgepodge you know, random fight of the night, right? You've got Josephine Knutson, who was just told, you know, you're not ready. Go back to the regional seed, you know, maybe get some more experience. Just kidding. You're signed. Welcome to the UFC, kid. So then it's like, all right, you know, quick switch up there from, from Dana White and co. But in in any case, she won the fight clearly. You know, at the time, I've been doing pretty well on Contender Series in terms of my reads, brother, but I didn't see that coming. You know, I thought Isis Verbeek was going to keep it more competitive. She was coming out of the biggie boy camp. Uh, you know, whenever I see people on contender series with proximity to UFC stars, it always gives me some, you know, pause, you know, do I really want to fade this person? Even you think about AJ uh, from contender series last week with the Bryce Mitchell connection, it always just makes me a little bit more hesitant to fade these people on contender series. Cause I know the, what's one of the things the UFC is looking for people that are being vouched for by their UFC training partners. Like, Hey, bring this guy onto the show. Like I think he could do well in the UFC. In any case, we're looking here at a Marnik man who got finished brutally on the, on the contender series. Uh, when she was on the show, right? She went there, she fought Bruno Brazil and that's a tough matchup. You know, she's a big girl. She's long. She's awkward you know, head kicked her brutally, finished her, knocked her out. Not something you're used to seeing uh, in, you know, WMMA especially. So when I look at this fight on paper, do I see that same kind of, you know, danger factor from Knutson on the feet necessarily? Not quite, but she does have a pretty good volume. She's a pretty consistent uh, striker. She looked good in that last fight against a girl who has a ton of experience in the standup uh, primarily. And she's been doing a better job of integrating takedowns as she's worked her way into MMA. You saw back in her old striking fight, she would sweep the feet and do things like that. But now I think she's getting a little bit more effective on top. And so when I look at the fact that she's like plus 110 or plus 120 or whatever it is to win ITD, and then she's like plus 800, plus 900, whatever it is to win by sub, that does stand out to me as a little bit mathematically um, silly, right? We're talking about a women's fight. First and foremost, we're talking about girls that don't tend to finish that much by knockout. So I just don't, I don't feel like that's necessarily an accurate line. Uh, Marduk man is a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but I also felt like the reason she got head kicked by Bruno Brazil is she was starting to slow down a little bit in that fight. 
wasn't really confident in her cardio in that extended contest. So she's been an athlete all her life. You know, she looks like she has many interests outside of fighting, let's say, uh, politely. But I just feel like when she's fighting, she brings her best effort to the cage. Just don't know that she's physically cut out for this weight class. She's very small, I think like five foot. And I, I'm all for short kings and queens out there that are trying to make it in this world. But I'm telling you that I just look at this one a little bit skeptically, uh, where Knutson, you know, do I think she should be this wide a favorite? I mean, that's just not the kind of thing I invest on. If you guys ever watch on the show, you'll never hear me touting like, yo, this minus 600 women's favorite is like exactly what I'm looking for. But, you know, I just feel like in this spot, those are the ways that I would look to target it. It's like, it feels like Knutson is being set up with a winnable fight here, potentially. Um, so the things I would look at are Knutson ITD, Knutson sub, or the fight ends by sub. And I haven't bet anything on this fight, but those are some of the looks that I was, uh, you know, eyeing down here and going to investigate further. How about you? Uh, what do you think about this fight, brother? Yeah. So my question is to you is, well, just to everybody is, do we think Marnik man is durable enough to survive? Like, what does she do well to survive? Cause I don't think she has any path to victory in this fight. Uh, I don't think she's going to be able to outstrike Knutson. And like you said, bro, like she's definitely improving in the grappling as well. She wound up in the clinch a lot versus Verbeek. And I think that was a little bit of a, a knock on her from the commentators and maybe from the, uh, Dana White himself. But she looks strong there, and that's where Marnik Man wants the fight. So if she's not going to have success there, I could see her eating some elbows and some knees as well from the Muay Thai uh, style of um, Knutson. And she could finish her for sure, but if Marnik Man is durable enough, I want to find a way to get this number down. And I'm going to look at the spread here, man, because even if she gets this done, I think it's at least a dominant decision at worst. And I'm getting minus 260 on the minus three and a half on a minus 800 favorite. It's a no-brainer to me and probably one of my favorite bets on the card. Uh, I think she just outstrikes Marnik Man completely, uh, hopefully avoids the clinch. But even if she does wind up there, I think she's strong enough and smart enough to avoid the submission, which is the only way I would worry that Man winds up winning this fight. But it's an early prelim, and I think this is a good setup spot for a girl in Knutson who's part of the Hamzat Shemayev, uh you know, regime, the wolf pack, I believe they call it. And he's coming up on a UFC pay-per-view very soon. We've seen uh, UFC get these prospects and flip them right away on these pay-per-view cards. I think Godinez was uh, one of them. It was really quick, but uh, this is another one where she, you know, if she could fight a few times, the UFC gets to know her. I think this is a good setup spot for her. And Hamzat will probably be in the crowd somewhere. So uh, I'll be going with that minus three and a half, man. Put it in a parlay, bet it straight, whatever. Yeah, I don't mind that look at all. You know, I tend to not bet point spreads just like as a rule. It's not a market I tend to look at. But in terms of this fight, that does seem like a good way to buy it down. Um, WMMA is one of the only times I have done that in the past. I remember uh, Andrade versus Lemos. I, I hammered the uh, Andrade minus points handicap because it was like a discounted version of her money line, her ITD, these kind of things. So uh, I definitely view that as a way to target these, you know, egregiously priced WMMA fights where, you know, the only thing I worry about is like a banana peel in round one where Knutson is not like the most sophisticated grappler to your point trains with the right people. I think she just has better cardio, better process, better athlete. I think eventually she will outlast this woman probably because of damage as well. Damage taxes your cardio. So if Marduk man's getting beat up in this fight, she could just get tired and then get finished. But in the early going, she is a purple belt from the United States against the European grappler. I'm always like, 
oh god like this could look like you know she gets the back in the first round and you're just like because that was my one concern with her coming into that verbeek fight is verbeek was training in the u.s and i was like i mean what exactly do i make of that you know like um maybe she had something to offer and it turns out she didn't but in that case it's like she's not somebody that grew up here and whatever she's kind of bounced all over the place marnik man grew up playing like uh, softball and all this stuff. I found her old Twitter account and everything, man. My, my, my social media research took me down some dark rabbit holes this week, but we've spent far too long on this fight. So let's kick it to the next one. My brother, we got Charlie, uh, face plant Campbell. I'm kidding about that, but that's what happened to me when I bet him on the contender series, unfortunate, uh, bet there. And now we got Alex Reyes on the other side and Alex Reyes guys has not fought since 2017. He's from the Fox era, my brothers. And, um, I did not know until today that this is the older brother of Dominic Reyes. That was uh, an interesting side note to me here. But for me, when I look at this fight on paper, I just say to myself, you know, um, do I want to lay a money line price like this on a UFC debutante? No, I do not. Do I want to do it after he burnt me at minus 150? No, I do not. When you look at that last fight, it was a short notice fight for Alex Reyes, and he took it at 170 pounds against Mike Perry, who's kind of a murderer, right? So like, Mike Perry beat him up in the clinch. I watched that fight. It's not a very long fight. He got to him and honestly, he knocked him out. Like it wasn't one of these fights where like a guy is like, oh, I don't like, I'm getting beat up. I'm going to quit. Like he was knocked out and then Mike Perry hit him with another one. And he was like, this, like looking around. So he got brutally knocked out in that fight. But I think about like, and, and now this is not, don't, don't quote me as making this comparison, but Jalen Turner debuts at 170 pounds. Vicente Luque sends him to the absolute depths of hell. But then I was like, fire your manager. Like, why Why did you get this fight at 170 against one of the biggest hitters, you know, where this was almost an inevitability, whereas at 155, we've seen what he can accomplish. It's very hard to put him away. He's a really good fighter and competitive with these top guys. So that's kind of an example for me where I'm like, is he going to perform better at 155? That's at least an open question. But the problem for me here with getting behind an Alex Reyes is like the entire career of Charlie Campbell amateur and pro has taken place in the time that this guy's been out of the octagon. So when you're talking about a guy that has a six year layoff, that's one thing he's fighting a guy who has been his entire career has taken place since 2018. This guy's last fight was in 2017 and he got brutally knocked out. So he might've been in the gym. He might've been staying active and, you know, getting sweats in and doing all this stuff. But I could just tell you guys, you know, what it was like for me when I hadn't competed in uh, wrestling in like three years. And then I went out there for my first time in a jujitsu white belt competition, the nerves were pretty serious and I was able to get through it because I had some competition experience and things like that. But even still, I underperformed to what I was capable of because I was in my own head. I, you know, I was like, wow, I'm back here competing. The nerves are there. You get more tired than you should. And this is a guy that already was a killer be killed guy that kind of gets out there and brawls a little bit. So when you've been out of the game for this long and you got a guy who's as dangerous as Charlie from the opening bell, who's trained by a really good team, who honestly was beating the absolute tar out of Chris Duncan until he got face planted in that fight because he got over aggressive because he hurt him. And I think that's something he can learn from. And I do think that a guy like Charlie Campbell, he's just from a team that's too sound. I feel like they're going to be like, listen, my, my brother, you need this win. So take this guy down. And I think he's going to take him down. And I think he's probably going to brutalize him. So uh, give me Charlie Campbell. And uh, I won't be surprised how he gets it done here. But I do. I actually do think he's getting it done in the first round. What do you think about this one? Yeah, I, I don't know, man. This is a weird one because I just don't know how to do the research on Alex Reyes, man. Because he isn't fought in forever. Like, what do I get out of him? 
Yeah, sure. He got one UFC fight and he got knocked out by Mike Perry. And by God, that was my favorite post-fight celebration ever when he just hit him with that, you know, peacock dance. Murdered him with that knee. But, um, yeah, I think this is a setup spot for Charlie Campbell. I think he could grapple him maybe early. And I'm just worried about the cardio of Ray. As sure, you could be working out, you could be running, you could be hitting pads. Like you said, that adrenaline dump is real. And even though he has the competition experience, it's been such a long time back in front of the crowd, six-year layoff, you know, all accumulating to that moment. And uh, all all the meanwhile, Charlie Campbell's been in there. Um, and the game changes, man. Like, the game changes. Think about MMA, just how far it's come in the last six years. Um, who was champion back when this guy last fought? It's probably, it probably was like Chris Weidman or some shit. You know what I'm saying? It's just crazy. Uh I just I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Campbell here. I don't wanna go too into this one. Um I think Law MMA is a great camp. I think he's gonna win this fight. And uh that's all I got on this one, man. No Rangers hat for me tonight. Uh but you know, I will say them New York boys could teach you how to wrestle once again. And I feel like Charlie Campbell could potentially get some wrestling off here. He is not an undersized lightweight. You know, that would be the one thing that would scare me off this if it's like a guy coming down from welterweight to a guy, uh, you know, who's a small lightweight. Charlie Campbell's a big guy at lightweight as well. So I think he's going to be well-suited here. And I think that he should have made it to the UFC, you know, and he just unfortunately got knocked out. You know, it's a brutal game. And uh, I just think live and learn experience for him. And uh, he's a savage. I feel like some people, it would break their confidence. I feel like this guy's like, all right, I got shut off. We'll do it again. Like, you know, I feel like he'd get up and fight Chris Duncan again right after that. So it, it is what it is. And uh, I feel like he's a, still a very talented fighter. So give me Charlie Campbell. But guys, guys, minus 500, you know, it is just like, don't, don't, don't banana peel yourself, you know, it, either find a way to buy it down or just leave it alone because it's MMA at the end of the day. And I always feel like my, my personal capping and you guys maybe take a different approach, but I feel like a puncher's chance is around 15%. You know, maybe a little bit smaller in some matchups where somebody doesn't have power or something like that. But we've seen Charlie Campbell get knocked out in the first round by a guy in Chris Duncan who's not a prolific every time he throws a punch, he knocks somebody out. He has some power, but he's not a one-punch knockout every time guy. So I do think, you know, this guy has a puncher's chance around 15%. The line is probably about appropriate here, but, um, you know, just don't get cute. That's what I'd say. <laughs> Next up. Speaking of not getting cute, we've got Tracy Cortez taking on Jasmine Jasuda Vicious. Um, you know, we we've seen some horny police in the uh, in the Twitter streets because of this fight. Uh, Tracy Cortez demonstrating the new fight kits. So we got um, an interesting fight here at Women's Flyweight, man. And I'm gonna throw this one to you first. Why don't you kick this one off, my brother? What do you think about this matchup at 125 pounds? Yeah, I just would wish I had seen a little bit more of Jasmine Jasuda Vicious on the bottom position but i think tracy cortez is going to wind up putting her there she gets takedowns in most of her fights and just look at her control time uh again almost nine minutes of control time seven minutes of control times in her fights that's a round and a half of a, of a woman's mma fight we're probably not going to get a finish guys i have to take tracy cortez here uh, i think she's going to be able to get jasmine down to the mat and you could say oh she did a good job of stuffing miranda mavericks takedowns I think Miranda Maverick was going for inside trips, small little, you know, whatevers. I don't think those were good takedown attempts. And even then, she was still able to get in on the hips of uh, Jasmine Jasdavisius, just wasn't able to drive through. And she, it's because she was too square. 
um, n- no driving force. You want to pick and you want to drive into the person. You want to pick. You know this. Uh, pick up their legs and drive into the person. If you're just running straight head on, it's almost like a football tackle. And Godinez kind of does the same thing. We'll talk about that later, but. I just don't think her takedowns are efficient compared to a Cortez, who I think is good, has multiple types of uh, takedowns. She could go for a body locks, outside trips, inside trips, and I think she has good top control as well. Good game planning, good coaching, good cardio, and I think she's the quicker striker. Uh, you know, Jasmine's best win was Miranda Maverick, and we just seen it. So I think you're buying into the Jazz Davicius, um stock when it's at its highest, coming off her biggest win. When she's 34 years old, how much improvements did she actually make from the previous fight to the next? Uh, other than that, I mean, the Fernandez win, I feel like, was a gift because she has no takedown defense. The Kay Hansen one, you know, out-physicaled her there in a debut, which was... Cash uh, the plus 200, baby. Well, the line, that's the last thing I'm going to say, is the line's just, you keep getting these plus money tickets on jazz Davicius and there's just only so long you outperform the market whereas you've cashed every single bet on cortez but it's been as a favorite and it's still been profitable i just don't know how long you could keep up that dog roll and keep profiting and out beating the market and i think this could be the fight where the market finally catches up to jazz Davicius. uh mexican yeah. heritage i'll go with the mexican I, I love where your head's at, brother. And truthfully, you know, I think both of these women, very talented. But let's look at the numbers here. You know, Jazz DeVicious, 3-0 and as an underdog in the UFC. You know, eventually that will meet some kind of regression, right? Um, when you look at Cortez, 5-0 and as a favorite, 66% ROI. Really impressive stuff. Eventually that will reach a point of regression, you'd think. But I just feel like who's got the higher trajectory right now? It's probably a Tracy Cortez. The hesitation for me comes from the layoff. You know, I listed the fact that everybody's talking about Alex Reyes, longest layoff on the card, deservedly so. But the second longest layoff on the card, anybody? Tracy Cortez, been out of the cage over a year. So I did want to see, you know, exactly what she brings to the table for this fight. But I do think of this as a fight where she's one of the biggest stars on the card period point blank in terms of the social media numbers, in terms of the traction that she's getting in that regard. Now, when you look at Jess Duvicious last time out favorable setting in Canada, I believe uh, Maverick was on a pretty quick turnaround as well from a previous fight. Um, so you look at those kind of circumstances, Maverick's still young. She's putting it all together. That was like Maverick, you know, at a point where she's probably not quite reached her peak. I feel like she'll peak at about 28, 29, 30, She's still getting her experience in the game. Whereas I feel like this is the best Jastu Vicious we're ever going to see. But I feel like Tracy Cortez, she's had that seasoning. You know, you look at the resume, it's very impressive. The Aaron Blanchfield win, whether it's a win or a very close split decision loss, however you decide uh, that fight should have been scored, it's like she's competing tooth and nail with one of the best girls in the division, period. So that's a trajectory that I feel like. Would we see that from Jesse Vicious when she fought in Natalia Silva, a girl that's probably not as proven. She was getting, you know, kind of dog walked in that spot. Uh, she has previous losses as well outside the organization. She's been in some close split decision type fights. She doesn't always make it clear. She sometimes has close fights, even the Palastri fight, which we retaped because Palastri was on contender series this week. I felt like Palastri was coming back on her in the third round there, kind of having her say, and that's Palastri who, by the way, competed at Adam weight at one point in her career. So now we're talking about a Tracy Cortez who's been physical, who's been competing in wrestling, again, in the United States for a long time. 
I she's not a New Yorker, so I can't get that bullish on it. But uh, them them Americans can teach you how to wrestle once again. And uh, I think Jasmine Jastuvicious, very good fighter. But I think you're right on the market points here. Where yeah, man, I love the plus two hundred against Kay Hansen. I'm foolish that I didn't take the plus two hundred against Miranda Maverick. I remember coming on this show and saying don't parlay Miranda Maverick this weekend, but I didn't take the plus money myself like a fool. But in this case, it's like now you're getting plus 100 to fade a girl that's been on a very good win streak. But the one, again, the one point I'll give to Jess Vicious is just she's staying active, man. And like activity can pay dividends in the UFC. We see it frequently. These people that just stay in the cage, they can keep putting together these kind of performances because they don't get rusty. They don't let themselves get out of shape at all. And they can push that pace for a hard 15 minutes. But I feel like Cortez, to your point, the right people surrounding her, world champions, credible coaches, the right advisors. I feel like she's put in the right work. So, uh, you know, barring any hiccups at the weigh-ins, give me Tracy Cortez here. And uh, I think there could be some value in the prop market. Not going to nerf myself out of that value, but um, just going to let let this market metastasize a little bit. I just feel like a lot of, a lot of narratives baked in the cake on this fight that I don't uh, fully agree with, but I feel like Tracy Cortez is the side. I just the I, the thing I wanted to say was she came off a long layoff in her last fight as well, and she performed really good versus Gato. So, uh, <laughs> oh, tell me about it, brother. That was another face plan L for me. Uh, not a knockout, but uh, a face plan over fifteen minutes there, huh? You know, so I just don't know how much I want to rate the um, the uh, layoff, and you know, Jasmine obviously is going to play submissions off her back, but is she as dangerous as Gato? And and we were we're getting an even better line. So yeah, I, and I will say Zen Monkey uh, has Jazz has those Randy Couture vibes, late bloomer, Greco Roman wrestler, dude. I will even say like Jazz impressed me her last fight. Like I expected her to keep it close with Maverick, not to like whoop on her a little bit. But I just feel like she has a lot of physicality and she can impose that on a lot of opponents. But like when it comes to technique and wrestling. Like sometimes that stuff just doesn't work. You know, you just get sat to your butt and then it's about trying to get your way back to your feet. And we have seen her get tired before. And that's normally when she's in the driver's seat. So I do feel like when you see her potentially not in the driver's seat, I'm like, yeah, uh, we saw that it could get real dicey. Look at the Silva fight, man. She looked lost in my, in my humble opinion. Now, did she expect that from Silva? None of us did, but still. Straight up, I uh, just saw my brother Wiz said to send that uh, send that link in the chat. So send it to we're we're gonna, to him. See, we're, we're gonna see to if we can get a uh, special bill. guest on here. So make sure that you drop a like uh, if you want to hear from our our brother from another uh, Wiz bets. Um, Wiz does he does a lot of things these days, including media for these MMA events. So make sure you give some love to our guy Wiz. But with that being said, we can move along here to the next fight where we've got Edgar Chaires taking on Daniel Lacerda. And this is one of the Twitter talks of the week, ladies and gentlemen, no doubt about it. You know, I feel like this is a, a pretty binary type of fight in some ways where you've got a guy who's reliable to come out there and create danger early to, you know, create an impact in the fight, but then to slow down over the course of the fight. You know, I feel like if you've been in combat sports for a while, you kind of know these kind of guys. And frankly, I can relate to this because I sort of was this guy for a little while when I was wrestling, 
where I was very nervous about gassing out. So my whole goal was like, all right, I got to kill this guy right away. Like I'm going to go out there and try and really just go for my stuff and go feet to back. Don't not mess around with any of this stuff on the ground. I'm just going to go feet to back. And that was a mentality that can only get you so far. You know, you go against better guys. And if you only have a good four minutes, it doesn't matter what lead you build up. They can come back in those last couple of minutes, you know? So I feel like that's a lesson you have to learn when you're young. You have to be humbled in that way. You got to take those L's and then adjust your style and adapt and, uh, you know, see where you can make those improvements. And Daniel Lacerda is now training out of shoot the box, Diego Lima. And we've seen these guys, you know, whether you want to say it's magic, whether you want to say it's momentum, whether you want to say it's magic beans, whether you want to say it's supplements, what, like you could say anything you want and don't say anything that gets me sued. But what we will say is that these guys are coming out looking aces, right? My man's got the blonde hair, you know, blonde Brunson just took a seat. Now there's a new spot, a new opportunity for a blonde haired fighter to come in. And this guy had a four fight deal, right? So how is he still here that would they give him a one fight extension? Maybe to give him this fight. And the thing about China is, is he's not a punk, right? He's not going to go out there and just give up any easy fight. But I do think his grappling is a little bit, you know, suspect still, right? Like in his last fight, he kind of had some early success and we've seen Tyra's a patient guy. He'll take the back foot a little bit. If he feels like he's in danger, he if he's in a submission or something, he'll wait it out. He'll kind of go, um, you know, small improvements, incremental stuff. He knows where to pick his spots, but he doesn't always force the finish. We saw against Carlos Condelario. He got submitted by Jake Hadley, not by Tetsuro Tyra. Tyra is a guy that has good finishing skills, but he also hasn't translated his power and his striking yet to the UFC level uh, as he did in the regionals. And that's where he created a lot of those finishes. I think people maybe don't understand that about his game. He's got good lockdown positions. So Chirez got stuck in a bunch of bad positions in that fight, but he didn't get submitted by a very high level grappler. So I was impressed by that. You look at the Jesus Aguilar fight, Jesus Aguilar gets no love or respect. I thought he was going to beat Shannon Ross, but I was worried that he was going to submit him. I didn't play the plus 950 KO. You'll never get a line that good again to fade the worst chin in the history of MMA. So I feel like Jesus Aguilar, a guy who's a little bit slept on, he got that submission in round five. You know, normally you got to wear this guy down for a long time before he's going to say, you know, I give up. And in that fight, it was a scrambly, you know, crazy mess. And I felt like Chirez did a lot of good work in that fight. That's a five rounder. So this guy's got experience. He's fought in combate. He's done a lot of the things that you'd want to see. So for me, it's a really tricky fight to call because the narrative, everything, like the cardio, ABC say always bet on cardio. Like a lot of things are just saying Chirez, Chirez round two and three, you know, even Chirez by sub, because I feel like Lacerda will just kind of gas out and give it up late. But then I look and I'm like, if this guy comes out here and he's got 15 minutes of brand new cardio that he got out the bottle, uh, I'm going to be so disappointed because Lacerda at this plus money price, you know, it is interesting enough. He, he's he been a favorite in a UFC fight before. He's never won one, right? So this guy, he's been around and he's had moments of success against almost everybody. There's nobody that just like punked him uh, instantly except for Figueredo in a weird grappling exchange. So I don't know, man. It's a, it's a really weird fight to me. And uh, Chirez goes from being like a huge dog in his first couple fights to now being a big favorite. We've seen that be Fugazi before and not work out. So uh, I just feel suspect about this fight. How about you, brother? I I um I don't agree, man. I don't think Lacerda's grappling is that good, honestly, man. I, I just think he falls off positions. He's 
putting himself in knee bars versus people who are just fishes on the ground themselves. And he tires out quickly, man. I feel like he has three minutes of cardio. So my next question would be, is Chirez tough enough to survive that? He's not getting knocked out. Dude has a hell of a chin. He's not really even getting hit. And I think his striking's pretty good, man. He was piecing up Clayton Carpenter. Knocked down Tyra in the first round. Had Tyra in some tight chokes. Almost finished him at the end of uh, a round. So this guy's legit, man. I think the price tag is due to the fact that in the last fight, he performed so well as an underdog. He had chances, you know, in that fight to get the job done. But it's still flyweight, so the power isn't necessarily there. I just think... Lacerda is the definition of a glass cannon, and we've seen it time and time again. I think this is a Mexico themed card, brother. I just truly, in my heart, I think these are set up matchups where the UFC really wants one person to win and the other to lose. And yeah, this could be one of those ones if he finishes him early, but I just don't see him submitting him. Now, I know Styles make fights, but I think he showed good submission defense versus Tyra. Sure, he's gotten a few submission losses on his regional record, and that would cause some people to react to that. But who has Lacerda submitted in the UFC? Nobody, bro. He he had Molina's back and fell off, and then Molina ground and pounded him. Um, he's losing to the bottom of the barrel guys here, so I think the UFC is throwing this dude a bone. I think minus 250 is fair enough. Uh, I would take Chiras here in this spot. Uh, maybe just throw him in like a long shot parlay, though. Don't go big on him because Lacerda is a little bit crazy for those first three minutes. Uh, but I trust the Chinachiras. Viva la Mexico. Zen Monkey says Lacerda, sometimes fighters are just due for a win. The gambler's fallacy, my brother. Uh, but in any case, I do think that when I look at this fight, you know, my pick here was Chires. I do think he's going to win this fight. But I also, I, I do believe that Lacerda is live in the first round. And I also do. You know, I think our point of disagreement is just I think he could submit him in the first round just because he's such a wild man. Like the the whole thing is, yeah, if somebody's sober and like completely clear minded, it's going to be hard to submit him. But Tyra wasn't really presenting that same grappling or excuse me, that same striking threat to him in order to hurt him, in order to try and put some danger in his mind, in order to make him make a mistake. And I feel like that was why he felt comfortable there. He was the one getting off first. Whereas I feel like in this fight, it could be a little different where Lacerda could just come out like a bat out of hell and try and jump through the roof on this guy. Um, Cause that's kind of what he does in every fight. And that's why those fighters, sometimes they meme one, but also a lot of times if it doesn't work, they have nothing left. And Mike Tyson used to say, you can fight for the knockout or you can fight for the decision. You can't do both. You know, it's hard to do both. Certainly. So we got a special guest though in the back. So without further ado, let's bring him on the show. My brother from another, Wiz Does in the building. How are you, my man? What's going on? You're, You're muted, muted brother. my brother. Doing well. Sorry about that. Uh, let me know if my connection is good. That's first and foremost. But as always, thank you for having me on the show. TJB, Jewish better. Always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, let's break down some fights, guys. Absolutely. Many blessings, my man. If you had any thoughts you want to give on Chires Lacerda, uh, we just gave our thoughts on that fight. So you're welcome to close us out here, brother. Or if you want to just move to the next one, we're happy to do that too. Yeah. yeah. Yo, if you don't mind real quick, I just want to address this comment real yeah. quick. Yeah. Fuck you, contender view. You're a bum. That's all I had to say. 
Sorry about that, my man. It's all Much love for me, Contender View. We we don't all have to get along. Uh, different strokes for different folks, but I don't mind. Um, so. Much love, much love. And if Wiz wants to smoke on the show, hey, that's his prerogative too. Um, I don't, I don't care what y'all are doing at home either when you're watching this show. So, um, peace, love, and chicken grease, whatever y'all want to do. But Wiz, please give us your thoughts, brother. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in this spot, we see Edgar Chiras around that minus two thirty price tag, going up against a guy who is pretty much kill or be killed in uh, Daniel Lacerda. We saw in his last fight, people were somewhat overreacting to the performance and one thing that i've been trying to implement in my breakdowns and overall just my thought process is not overrating a loss i know he looked great in the striking realm against cj vergara but at the end of the day guys it's cj vergara who is not known to be the most prolific or the most dynamic striker defensively or offensively so i'm gonna look past that fight and all you see on tape is just a guy who's winging heavies and uh has no regard for for protecting his chin when you go ahead and fight like that in the ufc you're going to end up zero and four and against a guy like chires you you see this guy have really clean combinations when it comes to the kickboxing and uh yeah sure the the ground game left a lot to be desired against tyra but this is a guy in tyra who has smoked his opposition thus far he dropped tyra not not to say anything else and you know what? When it was on the feet, it looked like he was leading the dance somewhat. So for all those reasons, I really think that Edgar Chiras probably could be a bigger sized favorite in this in this fight. But to me, it's just there is always that chance of Lacerda knocking this guy out in the first round. I'm not saying that Chiras is chinny at all, but you got to factor that in. So if, for me, if you want to play Lacerda, you have to play him round one. And that's that's it. Uh, I don't see any other way he wins this fight. Yeah, and the one other thing I'll mention is um, if your book offers it and it's not always available, um, and there was a book that I used to bet this at frequently that stopped offering it, and I think it was because we were taking them for some coins. Aaron Blanchfield in the under two and a half against Andrade plus 540, a gift from the heavens. But like they just stopped offering it for a while. But some books do offer correlated parlays between a fighter and an outcome in terms of rounds. And so if you can get Lacerda and the under one and a half, I think that's a really interesting way to target uh, Lacerda because I think that you, you know, if he was to finish outside of round one, it's going to be in those first two and a half minutes in round two in all likelihood uh, because we've never really seen him show good cardio. So just any, I always say, get as many outs as you can. And I always just, uh, fear that like screw job where the guy's like rocked at the end of the round. They send him back out when he's clearly like out on his feet and then he gets finished. You know what I'm saying? Uh, even think Kyle Nelson, Billy Quarantillo fight starts round three, one punch and the fight's over. It's like, Oh my God. You know, like those kind of things. I just like to get as much coverage as possible. So if your book offers it, look to that correlated parlay to the, uh, under, uh, if you could get more coverage. Next up, folks, let's talk about this middleweight clash between Roman Kopilov and Josh Fremd. Seems a little bit out of place, but maybe it's because he looks like uh, Canelo Alvarez. You know, Josh Fremd, uh, you know, knockoff dollar store Canelo Alvarez here. Josh Fremd, welcome to the building, brother. And um, I feel like this is an interesting one because on the one hand, Josh Fremd looked terrible in his last fight. I think we could all be frank in saying like, you know, just not finishing Jamie Pickett not a good look, right? You should go out there and finish if you want to be a high-level guy in the UFC, but he also missed weight. Some signs of concern there. 
this is one of two middleweight matchups, or excuse me, one of two like midweight matchups, welterweight and middleweight, where guys are just making an insanely quick turnaround, right? I think these guys are turning around in less than two months, uh, both of them. So it's a really like hastily booked fight, right? Roman Kopilov, dangerous striker, good knockout potential on the feet. Training that Dagestani wrestling, he's looked a lot better, defending more takedown attempts. The cardio has always been a little bit questionable. I absolutely hammered, like massive bet on Duraev, parlay, money line, every which way you could do it when he fought Kapilov. And boys, when that eye was like out, out here, I was like, I was ready to, uh, you know, cry in my coffee. So I'll tell you what, that was a, a nerve wracking experience for me. It taught me Kapilov way better than I thought. And I feel like now I'm going to just give him a little bit more respect here. Um, probably not going to be betting against him. I thought Hibadio was at least a somewhat live underdog in that last spot. And he was able to hurt him in the first round, but Hibadio didn't really have the cardio to press. Uh, Josh Frem does typically have cardio to push for a hard 15 minutes. He was a smaller underdog, in fact, against Fluffy Hernandez, who's a little bit more proven in this middleweight division. However, you know, styles do make fights. And would I be surprised at all if Josh Frem gets flatline knocked out in this fight? No, I would not. So I lean towards this fight, not going the distance. And I think Fremd is live to win this fight by submission. He's a little bit opportunistic there. I think he's made a point of working on his grappling more since he got submitted in meme-like fashion by Treshawn Gore in the UFC. So I feel like this is an interesting fight. I feel like it's a violent middleweight affair. And I got burnt last time I tried to bet the ends by sub in a copy love fight when they both just beat the tar out of each other on the feet and nobody even attempted to grapple. So Again, in this fight, I feel like Friend is going to have a little bit more of the game plan here, like go out there and try and attempt the grappling here, force it into those positions. But I'm not fully confident that he'll win them while both of these guys are fresh. Because Friend, the one criticism I have is he's just a little bit noodly. You know, like even against Fluffy Hernandez, the one criticism I have of Fluffy is he's not the most physically imposing guy. Sometimes it takes him wearing out his opponent's cardio before he can impose his will and his skill set because he's just not that strong. But I don't know, man. Like, this just feels to me like Kapilov is a pretty big, strong guy that's been putting on size. So it's a really tricky fight. I feel like it's violent as hell. Um, first, let's kick it to our guy, Wiz, here, brother. What do you think about this one, my man? Yeah, I mean, you, you the first thing you notice when you look at this matchup is you see the big favorite price tag on Roman Kapilov. And you try to piece it together and see where the advantages may lie, if there are any. The, the one thing I don't like about Josh Fremd is his striking defense. It's been a glaring hole over his past couple of fights. I mean, Jamie Pickett was was landing, I'm not going to say at will, but he was landing them heavies left and right against Josh Fremd in the last one. Now, another reason for this heavy price that could be that the short it's a short notice nature for Josh Fremd. He just recently fought and he came up off the couch and came and started to train for this fight. So that could factor into that price tag as well. But for me, the much more polished fighter, the fighter that has a uh, much more of a process inside the cage is going to be Roman Kopilov. Uh, multiple reasons. This guy uses his feints to his advantage, and you see him use it time and time again, and they work. He catches people doing the yo-yo with, with these hesitations. He's going in and out, and these guys just give him reactions that seem to, to be similar to the reactions that Josh Fremd gives other fighters in the striking game. So in, in the striking realm, I think this is Kapilov all day, and I think he probably does land that knockout blow probably in the second round, I want to say. I think Josh Fremd is a guy who has faced some adversity in his career, especially in the Anthony Fluffy Hernandez fight. Not necessarily a, like striking adversity, but it's more in the grappling, 
where he overcame some fatigue and fought his way out. Um, so I think he, he can tough it out into the second. But uh, I just think this is going to be Kapalov uh, from bell to bell. Unless Josh Fremd finds some success with his wrestling, which he sure can. He's shown the, the grappling and the wrestling chops in prior fights, and especially on the regional scene. But the, the issue with Fremd is he, he's one of those guys that just tends to fall out of position a lot. And he loses position to, to these guys um, probably because of his fatigue in most of these fights. But uh, against Kapilov here, who is not really known for his wrestling and uh, be, being like an opportunistic submission grappler off his back, uh, I can see where he can maybe take advantage of some positions. Uh, but one thing is Kapilov has been training in Dagestan for this whole camp uh, and even going into the last camp as well. So I think we see a much more polished guy in the wrestling year for Kapilov, and he probably gets this done on the feet. Yeah, I think Kapilov is just a really dangerous fellow these days. You know, that Carl Roberson fight feels like eons ago in terms of just how different he looks out there. Um, and I feel like he even looked much better from the DeKirico fight to this most recent fight. So um, Kapilov out there doing the damn thing, hustling to get a little bit better, um, you know, and who knows how he's accomplishing it. Um, legal and illegal, that's all fine with me as long as you're cashing tickets, brother, eh? Uh, Jewish better, how do you feel about this one, my guy? I feel I feel uh, it's an interesting fight, man. It's definitely an interesting middleweight bout. I do like Kopilov. He showed some good stuff, especially in that last fight versus Ribeiro. I think the real good performance was against Puna Soriano. I don't think much people really expected that. He absolutely butchered him with the body kicks, man. Um, I like his combinations, the fluidity of his combinations. And he's one of those guys who's really a, a little bit of an assassin. He takes time to, to get his reads, but once he gets them, he, he jumps on it quick. Um, Throwing the body kicks again is going to be something that Frem's dealt with in the past and has gave him some trouble. Um, the, we'll talk about Frem, though, in a second. Kopilov, that, that high kick was beautiful in his last fight. The way he fainted and, and saw that Ribeiro wasn't raising his right hand, he dropped it a little bit, comes right back, high kick, puts him out to sleep. Like That just shows how technical he is and how he's trying to get these reads. With all that being said... I think this line is a little bit wide, and I'm going to tell you guys why. I think wrestling and jiu-jitsu are two different things, and the wrestling defense of Kopilov, I do like. It's when he gets to the mat, he kind of is a fish, guys. Like, let's be honest, getting submitted by Carl Robertson, albeit a few years ago, that's something I can't forgive. And when Darayev does get him to the mat and does finally get top position, He's able to just mount, ground, and pound him. And, yeah, Darius legit. He's got good top control, but he's not doing anything to get – he's not shrimping the half guard, Liam. Like, this is basic white belt stuff that we both know. He's just sitting there getting punched. And you could say that's due to fatigue or cardio, but what if friend winds up in one of these positions? The you know, Russian mob got to him, bro. It was brutal. <laughs> Well, what if Frem does wind up getting in one of these positions? Sure, he might not have the best subs, but he's got a good guillotine choke. He's got good top control. He He's rear naked choked the guy before with no hooks. I mean, take that for what it's worth. Um, I just don't know if I see the value in Kopilov here. Um, that being said, my prediction for the fight is going to be Kopilov to get the knockout. 
uh, probably in round two, like my man Wiz does said, if he's not able to have success with the grappling here, um, like he did versus Pickett, he wasn't able to have success there. But that could be due to a few things, botch weight cuts, uh, et cetera, just getting his feet wet. Friend's still 28 years old, and he's at a decent camp. So middleweight fight's going to be volatile. If there's a parlay buster in there, I think this could be one of them. Here's the thing that ultimately makes me lean towards Kapilov. Um, this is a theory I've promoted before. Uh, it's it's not always correct, but I feel like, largely speaking, it's been borne out. And I think when you miss weight in the UFC, um, and most especially if you miss weight and fuck up you know, something that's important to them, like, listen, Jamie Pickett is like supposed to be your highlight builder. The thing that you go out there and you get the win, you get the finish and they go, look at this guy. He's so talented. Like he can go beat anybody, like watch him beat this guy, like, or watch him go fight this guy who he's probably going to lose to, but like, come on, give us your money. Like that's kind of what this business is, right? They have guys that, again, I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but like not everybody's there to win a world title. Right. No, no disrespect. Jamie Pickett's not fighting for a world title. He's not going to be a top 10 contender in the UFC. This, these things aren't going to happen. So like where, why is he here? He's enhancement town. He's there. So other people can look good fighting him. Right. And that's just the way it is. And like, maybe he changes his whole life and career and, and I'm wrong. I'll eat my words, but like, I've seen this a million times, right? We got to know there's guys that have a certain ceiling and it's not championships and it's not top five and it's not top eight and it's not top 10. So where are they? They're, they're enhancement for these other guys. They're tests along the way. And Josh Fram failed the test because he didn't beat the first opponent, which is the scale. So the UFC doesn't like when you don't make weight. And you know what else they don't like? When you miss weight and then put on a shitty performance against a guy who's supposed to be enhancement talent that you're supposed to go beat and finish. So then what do they do? They look around for a guy that most people haven't heard of that's a, a freaking hammer. And they try and get you hurt. And they try and get you beat up. So you learn your lesson and you don't mess up again. And this guy is not a guy that was setting the world on fire. He's two and two in the UFC and Josh Fram. So you don't have the leeway to go miss weight and like look like shit, you know? And then they're like, yeah, fight again in two weeks. And it's against this Russian hammer that nobody's ever heard of. Ding! That was the phone call. So I feel like Josh Fram has a lot to prove here. He's going to try his best. He's going to bring, you know, that energy, that spirit, whatever. But again, the contextual factors here, Farid Basharat against Clayton Rodriguez, everybody was telling me Clayton Rodriguez, he's a good prospect. Yeah, he's a fine enough prospect, but you know what happened? He missed weight against Tyra and he made them cancel a fight. Then he made Tyra look like an asshole two weeks later because he had to cut weight again, then underperformed against Chires. So then you look at Tyra and you then have a worse opinion. They cost money. They fucked up the bag. They were supposed to promote it to a Japanese audience on one day and they couldn't because this guy missed weight. So the UFC doesn't go, oh, okay. Like, yeah, let's promote you again next time. They go, uh, here's Farid Basharat, who nobody's ever heard of. That's a hammer. Good luck. And then you get finished in the first round. So for me, I think Roman Kapilov is aside here for a couple of different reasons. And uh, that that is the primary one. I feel like they are sending him there to do a job, which is to, uh, to humble Josh Friend. Uh, you know, like, like, uh, the iron Sheik. you know, he's going to make him humble. Uh, and I think Josh Fram could win the fight, right? I, we talked about the liabilities of Kopilov, but I always try and play matchmaker. Why are they doing this? I think that's the reason why. So take that for whatever it's worth. Next up, Lupita Godinez taking on Elise Reed. If you guys look, this topology is a, 
a mess, a cluster F, if you will, of canceled bouts, fizzled bouts, rescheduled, move this one, retake a opponent from here, move it around. Like they're just trying to find anything and make it stick, right? 11 fights, hopefully. Like that's what they're doing this weekend. And it's been a disaster, right? A bunch of big fights have fallen out. So this is another one of those fights that's kind of just been pieces on the chessboard moved around. But I feel like this lands on Lupi Godinez in a dominant way. Uh, and when I look at it, I just feel like Lupi Godinez has a path to easy takedowns in this fight. I feel like she's the naturally better athlete, and I feel like she's got more power on the feet, more linear strikes with the boxing. I feel like a lot of what we see from Elise Reed, getting herself on one foot, throwing a lot of kicks, I feel like she could be barreled over. Most of the women she's beat in the UFC are small, undersized. Some of the women that she's been beaten by in the UFC beat her with their B game, like uh, what's her name, Loma Luke Boomi, taking her down and finishing her on the mat which by the way, I said was possible in the lead up to that fight. I was like, this girl is a fish like on the mat at times. Um, and that's what I kind of envision here too. I just think Luby Godinez too physical, too strong. I think she's going to get takedowns here. And I think she's going to finish Elise Reed. The thing about Elise Reed is she's tough, right? Army tough. I always say, I don't like to fade veterans, bro. But when you look at this one, you know, look at what happened when she went against a uh, notorious gasser and can hardly make it to the octagon due to weight issues. Sajara Eubanks. She absolutely destroyed her face. And guys, it looked like a criminal assault. It did not look like an octagon fight. It looked like something that you would watch in a snuff film. It was not good. So I just feel like Elise Reed kind of has a certain cap of athleticism and a certain cap of her ground game that is not at this level. So I feel like when people are able to take it there, they can kind of exploit that fact. And I feel like when you look at Lupi Godinez at her best, she has those skills. She trains with the Canadian women's wrestling team and a bunch of other people that get her ready for these kind of fights. And I don't think a lot of women can train at that level in terms of their wrestling in particular. So give me Lupi Godinez here. Uh, and we'll kick it to my guy, Jewish better here to keep the order uh, yeah. fresh and new each time. What's up, brother? No, you're good. You're good. Uh, let's do it, man. Uh, I got to take the Mexican fighter here. Once again, I think this is just another setup spot. I originally was trying to find a way that Elise Reed could have some value, but just at the end of the day, even her scrambles are getting a little bit better. She's throwing up Oma Platas in her last fight. Wound up getting back to the feet a few times versus Ufry. And I'm not a fan of the top control necessarily, Lupita Godinez, but I think she's getting a little bit better. She showed some good, decent boxing versus Ducote, but I think the path is obvious here. It's to take the fight to the ground where Elise Reed doesn't have the best grappling defense. And um, I just I can't really find a path for Elise Reed beside a split decision, and I just don't think they're going to do that on Mexican Independence Day in Vegas with Lupi Godinez there. Um, she could she could get a finish here. I just don't like the submissions she goes for necessarily. I've seen her getting fully locked in arm triangles and not able to finish them. So um, she's going for neck cranks. But at the same time, I watched Elise Reed get taken down by Melissa Martinez, who's probably bottom of the barrel. So I'm going to keep this one short and sweet. Give me Lupita Godinez. Uh, I put her in a parlay with Marnik Mann, minus three and a half. Uh, let's get that money. Marnik man minus three and a half. What is that? Plus a thousand. I keep saying, I keep saying that. I don't know why I keep saying that. And and the dude, I'm uh, pretty sure somebody messaged me before. I posted Marnik man three and a half. Also, I hope I didn't track it as like three and a half. But uh, Josephine Nutson minus three and a half. I feel you there, <laughs> brother. <laughs> Wiz, what do you got on this one, my man? Uh, agree, disagree? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very difficult to go against Lupita Godinez in this spot, especially when you look at the, the skill set of Elise Reed. 
in the last fight, yeah, I mean, she she looked pretty decent. I'm not going to say it was her, her best outing against Jin Yu Frey, but she got the job done. And the, the one fight that you can point to, which you could almost say is a, a similar matchup, is the, the matchup against Loma. And what did Loma go out there and do? Sure, she got pieced up in the first couple of minutes. Uh, and then once she realized, like, wait, why am I not taking this girl down? She found all the success. And w there is no better term to describe Elise Reed on the mat as a fish. She she doesn't really have anything to offer off her back and uh, has failed to show any sort of improvement over her past couple of UFC fights, which leads me to the, to the understanding, at least just based on assumption, that she's just not really working on her ground game. And if, if Loopy's fighting smart here, she will go to the takedowns. I know in her past couple fights she has not. But against Cynthia Calvillo, she probably had a game plan where she knew that Cynthia Calvillo is a good counter wrestler and has wrestling chops of her own, but displayed some really good striking. And against Emily Ducote, who a lot of people really thought that Ducote was going to outstrike this girl, she just laid it on her. Ducote looked like she was not even supposed to belong in the same octagon as Lupi Godinez in the striking realm, which shows that she's been working on the striking at least, and it's something that she's progressively improving. So for all those reasons, I'm going to have to go with Lupi, regardless of whether she shoots a takedown or not. Obviously, if she wants the path of least resistance, it's going to be the takedowns, but I think she could win all three rounds in the striking realm as well. So yeah, give me Lupi, probably inside the distance, uh, TKO ground and pound. Yeah, man, I think that uh, we we tend to agree on this one uh, pretty wholeheartedly. The things that I would point out is that, uh, you know, you look at her last couple opponents. I mean, Emily Ducote is a good fighter. Like, I would favor Emily Ducote over Elise Reed pretty comfortably as well, um, personally. You know, I feel like she could mix in wrestling, takedowns, grappling upside on somebody like Elise Reed too. So this just feels like a winnable fight for me, um, you know, on the Lupita Godinez side and the one thing I will point out before we get off this fight, because I always want to come to you guys with facts. And the facts are, Lupi Godinez is one of the worst handicap fighters among betmma.tips. People that have bet on her have lost money. People that have bet against her have lost money. She's just been the anti-money uh, you know, train. But that does not mean that she's not going to win this fight, right? Like, at least Reed has cashed as an underdog for people. That could be lingering in their mind. And I think some people will come in on Elise Reed as a dog here. She's got the height. She's got the reach. Um, it's a very similar age matchup, right? So there's no standout dynamic here in the anthropomorphic advantages that says like Lupi Godinez is the clear side. But then just the matchup stylistically, to your point, I think you've got a fish. And the only reason that I can't get fully on board is I wouldn't go so far as to say a shark, right? I always like a shark versus a fish, right? Somebody that's just going to dominate every time on the mat versus somebody that's completely flaky on the mat, like Shavkat versus Neil Magny, the gift of all gifts, right? But now we're talking about one where it's like, uh, you know, I don't know if she's necessarily a shark on the mat, but I think she does have upside in all positions on the mat. I think she can dominate her physically, and I think that's the biggest difference here. So give me Lopita Godinez, and I'll make a specific prediction for you. Belly down armbar. Give me Lupi Godinez, belly down armbar. I think that's how she gets it done. Um, she's pretty proficient from that position, so that's what I like. Next up. Let's go to the main card, guys. That was the preliminary portion for everybody. So shout out to everybody rocking in the chat. We got 70 people still rocking with us live. God bless each and every one of you guys. Hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, drop a like. Make sure you get subscribed, and we will keep it rolling here. As I plug in my laptop so it does not die live on the air, 
We will kick it to my brother uh, to start us off. Wiz, how do you feel about this Padilla fight? Uh, kick us off, my brother. So the the way I'm looking at this fight, you're, you're going to look at Padilla's first fight and only fight in the UFC, and it was against um, Julian Arosa. Uh, it was a very wild first round. Both guys were landing at will, but... It was kind of something we knew on the Julian Arosa side in terms of the striking defense. He really lets uh, anyone strike and, and land at will. He fights down to his competition, and we saw a perfect example of that against the newcomer Padilla. And Padilla is a sub-50% striking defense uh, kind of guy. Very lanky, long, long-rangey guy. Uh, striking, he throws a lot of looping shots has some power to it, but he's more of an attritional guy when you look at the regional tape. Uh, but one thing that surprised me, because initially I thought just from memory in the Julian Arosa fight that he was getting tagged up and the reactions weren't all that well. But after re-watching it, uh, the chin seemed to hold up quite a bit. And on the regionals, you see this guy get cracked and cracked over and over again. And he tends to survive. Now, on the other hand, you look at Cal Nelson, who really hasn't been dealt the all the best cards in the UFC uh, in his past five fights, but has made the most of them. A lot of these uh, handicappers have thought that he is a guy who's fragile after that one knockout loss in the first round quickly. Um, but it showed over his past three to at least improve his process and at least be able to, to improve the striking defense just a little bit so he's not getting hit with all these heavy shots. So for me, I think Cal Nelson has a chance in this fight, uh, especially if this goes to decision. I do think that Cal Nelson will be able to to drown him with the grappling. Padilla does have some sort of ground game off of his back, uh, training out of the same gym as Carlos Barza here out of Irvine. So he's not a complete fish off his back. But I do think that Cal Nelson is going to be able to negate whatever he's trying to do in the jiu-jitsu department and rack up some control time. Uh, and eventually I think he wins a 29-28 decision in this one. So for me, I have a half-unit bet on Kyle Nelson at plus 206, and then I also have uh, a quarter unit on the Kyle Nelson decision at plus 650. I don't think you can go wrong either way. Uh, I know you could target it in the in terms of the plus 3.5 point spread, where he only has to win a round on all the judges' scorecards. Um, considering that, but uh, I haven't really looked at the price yet, but I'll go ahead and do that now and update you guys. Love it. And what do you think about this one, um, my guy? Oh, all right. I like Padilla here, man. And I was going to say, honestly, I had the same thoughts as Wiz does early. Because sometimes the thing is with that 10th planet style of jujitsu that Padilla plays is you could give up positions sometimes. And maybe somebody like Kyle Nelson could take advantage of that. But then I go back and watch Nelson get submitted by Matt Sales. And I'm like, dude, Padilla could submit him off of his back. It's totally possible. He submitted Derek Minner. He's got a bunch of triangles and arm bars on his regional record. And sometimes I feel like we get a little bit too hesitant on the – or like we hate on the jiu-jitsu a little bit too much from the bottom. But I think over these last two years, Fernando Padilla hears the noise. He knows like the game evolves. He, he's made these mistakes in the past. He knows he has to improve. So I think he'll use the jiu-jitsu to either stand up back to his feet or submit Kyle Nelson. And once this is on the feet, I think Padilla has all the speed that he needs in the spot. And 
once again, it's a Mexican fight card, so I'm going to take a little stab on Padilla inside the distance. I think his regional tape is a little bit of fool's gold, and he's with a good team in Colin Oyama a few years later, and this could be looking like a completely different fighter. And He did still beat Julian Arosa, who we do uh, knock on his chin, is still a legitimate veteran in the game, so um, handle him pretty quickly. Give me Padilla here. I think he gets a submission. I think he sets it up from rubber guard, goes from that um, meat hook triangle, which is one of my favorite uh, setups from the rubber guard, probably the highest percentage one if you ask me. Um, I think he gets the job done with it and submits Kyle Nelson here. Another Mexican keeping the theme going. Let's go. Uh, my brother, I tend to agree. Uh, I actually do tend to agree. And – I don't think that Kyle Nelson is out to lunch here as an underdog. You know, I wouldn't even be surprised if he wins the first round because when he's fresh, he's a really dangerous fighter, you know, and the other credit I want to give, and I have been talking about this week, it's just that Kyle Nelson has looked better in terms of his cardio and his preparation, his last couple fights. So I want to give him that shout out there. Um, he showed up in Canada, knew that he needed to get the win there um, and went out and, and, you know, really scrapped it out. But I just feel like Kyle Nelson, the thing that stood out to me in my research, guys, I always look at how people have performed in their odds range in the past. And as an underdog, he's one in four against the number minus 33% ROI. So you could argue he's due for some regression. You know, he could definitely get back on the horse here and he could, but that would even you out. You know, that would get you back to where you started it in some ways if you've been betting him the whole time out. And so for me, I've faded him a handful of times. You know, I've been selective. I think I played Billy Quarantillo against him. Um, you know, at one point, but I just think of this fight as a tough spot for him because Padilla is going to have the size advantages here. He's going to be a little bit longer, a little bit taller, and I feel like he's going to be able to touch him from further away. So it's going to force Kyle into these grappling situations and he's going to use a lot of squeeze. You know, when you're the smaller guy uh, and, you know, guys look at me, I mean, I can't hide the fact that I don't have the longest arms in the world, right? So Sometimes you got to squeeze. You got to keep really close to people that could burn off a lot of energy. And so the one thing I worry about is a guy that struggled with cardio a bit in the past, trying to hold down somebody and really like exert that pressure when they also have the threat of submissions. Cause here's the thing. It's one thing. If I, if you're trying to get up and I'm trying to hold you down and we're wrestling, that's just, we're both getting tired. But the thing is when you're trying to get these submission attempts and defend and defend, you're nervous. Oh my God, he almost got my arm. And you start to panic a little bit more. And that's just what I worry about here is like under the threat of multiple submission attempts, does he just start to panic a little bit, get more fatigued? Um, so it's a fascinating fight to me. The other thing is you, you talked about this, I think last night in spaces, um, Jewish better that if, uh, it, I think it was, um, you were talking about Padilla's ground game and the fact that he's a guy that because of his aggression and his willingness to pursue subs, that can get his guard passed too, you know, so that like that there's, there's the pros. And then there's also the cons, you know, he could end up giving up some good positions to Kyle Nelson early in this fight because this kid's throwing up triangles. He's going for this, that, and the other thing. But when you do that, if somebody's able to pass, you know, you've given them the angle that they need uh, to get by. So for me, really, really fascinating fight. Again, another fight. I favor violence. I favor the fight ends by sub. Um, but I think Kyle Nelson's best path. And if you're on the Kyle Nelson side, I would take a sprinkle of that Kyle Nelson decision plus 650. I think, Wiz, you're on the right track here. If he wins this fight, I think he's doing it by getting some control time, holding this kid down. That's how he's lost in the past. Yet you're getting a very generous price 
on this decision line. You know, Padilla is not a guy that's a punk. You know, he's not a guy that's getting finished easily. So if it was to be finished, I feel like it's going to be grappling. You know, I feel like it's going to be either one of these guys gasses out or one of them is just better on the mat. But you know that these length dynamics can favor submissions as well. When one guy's really long and one guy's really short, that could be good for both guys. You know, it could be good for the guy who's shorter because he can get a good squeeze. He has access to these long arms that he could try and rip off. But the other guy can throw up these submission attempts that are hard for the guy uh, with shorter arms to defend. So for me, really interesting fight here. And uh, I'm fascinated to see how this one plays out. We got sharp opinions on both sides. So excited to see this one, boys. Next up, we've got the... Daniel Zell Hubert against Christos Yagos, lightweight matchup. And this one is another Mexican prospect here, 13 and 1. Daniel Zell Huber kind of flubbed his UFC debut, you know, just deer in headlights a little bit, kind of got caught watching a little bit too much, uh, didn't really do anything, right? And then we saw in his next fight, he looked like the guy that we had seen before on the regional scene, you know, a guy that was talented and that had upside and that looked like he wanted to be out there, right? So the thing is, I'd like to see some consistency before I just start buying into these numbers, uh, you know, from a long-term perspective. But when I just envision this fight and how it's going to go, I've never been a Yagos believer, guys. That's just me personally. Um, you know, that last fight, I thought he was going to lose to Ricky Glenn. So I'm not going to change my tune here completely, right? That win, very nice. I mean, God bless him for it. Ricky Glenn, he's a little bit old. He's a little bit fragile. He's a little bit awkward. But when the fight gets extended, he beats the hell out of people. Ask Grant Dawson, right? That was one of my best bets that didn't cash in my life. I, I bet him plus 400. And at the end of that fight, you know, Grant Dawson knew what time it was. He was like, thank you, father, for I have sinned. You know, when you look at this, I'm thinking of a guy in uh, Christos Yagos who, when he's doing well, he's like a good hammer. I just have never seen this guy as a very good nail. You know, he's a guy who looks very uncomfortable fighting to me. You know, he goes out there, he's like all tensed up. He looks like Jose Aldo with none of the finesse, you know, like Jose Aldo's constantly at tension, like ready to move, slip, dip, rip, whatever. This guy is always like, I need to grab a hold of you. I need to hit you with something hard right now. And maybe he does that because, again, I didn't expect it in the last fight. He absolutely flatlined Ricky Glenn early going. He does train at a good gym, can take nothing away from him. He's got 30 professional fights, way more professional fights than Daniel Zell Huber. But then I just look at like, where do I feel like this fight's going to end up? I feel like it's going to end up in Yagos taking desperate attempts from far away with his takedowns. I feel like he's eventually going to get himself into bad, awkward grappling situations because that happens to him pretty frequently. And he doesn't have the most ironclad chin I've ever seen either. I feel like he gets hurt a lot when he exchanges on the feet. So for me, I just feel like Zell Huber, more durable guy. And unless, um, you know, unless we see uh Yagos go out there and really surprise me I, I just feel like this is going to be a fight that Zell Huber uh can win so give me Daniel Zell Huber here and my my sneaky uh you know pick here would be Zell Huber by sub you know and I I thought that he was going to cash that in against Lando Venata if he had uh you know a brain in there when Lando Venata was hurt all over the place maybe he does submit him so I I feel like uh you know maybe that's a learning lesson so in any case he comes out of uh Extreme Couture, I believe they're not known for going out there and submitting people, right? We saw with Sean Strickland over the weekend, punch, 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 and and fight for the decision. So that's the only concern there. But I feel like Zell Huber gets this win. Um, what do you think about this one, Wiz? We'll start with you, brother. Yeah, um, Zell Huber, I think rolls in this fight. Uh, Christian Yagos is not a fighter that has really had a proven track record when it comes to the UFC, and his chin is something that is quite concerning. He says it himself. He's a, a killer be killed type of fighter. And 
when you have a guy like that going up against someone who has a bunch of reach against them and is a much more competent striker with some sort of process, I think it's going to cause a whole lot of trouble. Uh, what I think is going to happen is I think Zell Huber is going to hurt him on the feet in the first round. Uh, Yagos is going to try and panic grapple here and probably get himself into a bad position to where he could get submitted. That was also uh, something I was looking at myself, Liam. So shout out to you for even thinking of the same thing here. But I do think in the Venata fight, Zell Huber did rebound and showed that the first fight in the UFC's debut against Ogden was some sort of fluke. And a lot of guys in, in recent interviews that I've had behind the scenes have told me that this guy, Trey Ogden, is someone who fr is frustrating to spar in the gym, let alone fight in the cage. He kind of ruins your process and, and makes you fight a, a boring type of fight or a, uh, a fight that you're not even game planning for. So I, I just think ultimately Zell Huber is going to be the, the much better striker here, the guy with much more power and the, the much more processed fighter. Uh, so, yeah, I think Zell Huber gets us done inside the distance. Uh, it's probably going to be a knockout, but uh, I'm probably going to get the, the submission line here and uh, pray for the best. Yeah, to answer the questions in the chat, uh, Zell Huber does have a few submission wins. It's not his primary path to victory, to Wiz's point. Uh, something I always talk about is if the KO line and the ITD line are within striking distance, cover the ITD and take the upside on the other prop or just leave it alone because you don't want to find yourself out to lunch with you know a KO prop when it ends by sub. You missed out on the line by 25 cents and now you're like, why did I do that? You know, And a lot of people say that after the fact, they're like, why did I do that? So that's one thing I always caution people. If it's a massive disparity, if it's a difference of a dollar fifty, okay, now I understand why you've got to be a little more selective. But like when we're talking about 10, 15 cents, get more outs, uh, you know, pay up for those extra outs because it's MMA, right? And we've seen Hadolfo Vieira uh, get submitted by Anthony Fluffy Hernandez. Like just believe it, believe that anything's possible, okay? Uh, we saw Yuri Prohaska submit Glover Teixeira in the fifth round, all right? Like, what, what else do you need to see before you go, okay, yeah, I'm going to take the ITD. <laughs> Not to cut you off, Liam, but Exhibit A last week, Carlos Elberg. The the ITD line and the the knockout line were five cents apart. Yep. And, and do you know how many people after the fact were like, I can't believe it. I can believe it. That's what I'll say. Every time I can believe it. KO line. My bad. I said I can sub. Oh, good call. Uh, Jewish better. What do you think? Are you talking some sense into us or uh, are you agreeing with us? No, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I agree with you for sure. I I am on the KO prop at plus 250. I think the inside the distance was around plus 130. So I'll take that little extra juice because from what I've seen from Zell Huber in the past is he'll avoid the grappling situations. He'd much rather keep the fight standing. Sure, Giagos could try and wrestle here, and he has some decent wrestling, but the problem I see for him is the cardio specifically. So, yeah, I could see a death gas sub for sure, but I think Zell Huber um, straight punches beat looping punches. He changed Giagos uh, either in round one or round two. Keep the Mexican theme going, baby. Uh, I think they're giving these guys winnable matchups. This might be the toughest test since, you know, Giagos has ex uh, veteran experience. He's been in there with some big names, right? But he's facing a young athletic guy who has an age advantage. He's uh, on a themed card, and he's in Vegas where he trains. Uh, it's a hometown advantage as well. So, 
and the team's on fire coming off a world championship win. Um, I like to keep the momentum going. So I'll go with Zell Huber here, the young prospect. I think he's going to hit him with a, a straight uh, punch, right cross, uh, knockout Giacos. But, yeah, Sub is definitely live. Uh, I just, you know, the subs that he does have, kind of exotic subs like calf slicers that's what i'm saying very, dude triangle choke that seems like exactly the kind of meme that christos yagos loves to run off into the distance with, you know? <laughs> <laughs> i'm with There's you guys to keep in the back of the mind but i love it i love it i think that this yeah. is a, a fun fight two action lightweights but uh you know when you're talking about a killer be killed fighter against a guy who's never lost inside the distance i understand why he's favored <laughs> Yeah, I just think the cardio is the big thing here, and that's the main theme on the card for me, I think. Uh, well, not the main theme, but that's, you know, always something I'm looking at. Like, Chirez, I'm going to automatically bet because of the cardio. And Zell Huber here as well. I'm, I'm just never been a fan of, there you go, there you go. It's never been book. a fan it's of Giagos. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I've never been a fan of Giagos, though. He's just always been a mid-level competitor to me, and I say that respectfully, but... I think this is a winnable fight for the young Mexican prospect as well. And sure, he's going to be in a lot of boosts, right? He's going to be a popular pick. Uh, but I think I think he's the rightful favorite. I love it. So panel is unanimous on this one. We think Daniel Zahuber is getting the job done. Hope that he's not that parlay buster, but I just don't view Christos Yagos as that guy. Um, I feel like he's a little bit fragile out there again, with all due respect to these guys that are putting it on the line, but you know, Christos Yagos just, we've seen examples of him, you know, getting finished in the UFC. We just can't ignore it in the data. So um, for me, this is a spot where they're like, Daniel, Daniel, listen, you almost did it last time. Please, for the love of all things, holy finish this guy. And he's like, understood boss. Yes. Yes. Mr. Dana, I got you. So that's what I'm expecting here. Daniel Zellhuber, big smile for the cameras after he finishes this guy. Uh, that's what I want to see. Speaking of, Raul Rosas Jr. next up at 135 pounds. Can we get the hype train back on the tracks, boys? We've got a big favorite price here once again because he's taking on Alaska's own Terrence Mitchell. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Terrence Mitchell back in the crosshairs here. He has been around UFC proximity for some time, right? Fought High Car France. That one didn't turn out so hot. Couple knockdowns there uh, and route to that loss in the first round. But you look at that fight, it's at 125 pounds. He looks like a guy who's too big for that weight class. He's now up at 135 pounds. And the only concern that I have about Raul Rosas Jr. is I do worry about his physicality. I know people are like talking about, you know, he's got this crazy physicality. Yeah, I, I saw that too for five and a half, six minutes where it's easier. I, I always talk about the difference between wrestling and jujitsu that a lot of guys and myself included have to learn when they first come in is the difference between a sprint and a marathon. When you're wrestling, there's six minutes on the clock, brother. It's about points. It's about getting to where you need to go right now. It's a sprint. And when you're doing jujitsu, oftentimes it's about being patient. It's about waiting for an opportunity. It's about creating a setup and putting yourself in a, a position of vulnerability to bait somebody into a bad spot. And so I just look at a fight like this and I say, you know, Raul Rosas Jr., he's got a lot of opportunity to finish this fight early. No doubt about it. Um, I've seen a couple missed prices on this fight where I've thought about firing, but I just have a lot of theories on this fight. Like I, I could envision it ending a lot of different ways. Let me give you some examples. Like I could see this being a first round knockout for Raul Rosas Jr. He doesn't have many knockouts on his record, but you have to look at who the guy is and who his opponent is, right? And his opponent has been knocked out 
several times, right? And he's been put in compromised positions on the mat and then finished, which is exactly what happened in his last fight. So why couldn't Raul technically do that in this fight? And it's a big plus number on a guy who's a massive favorite. So that's something interesting. But then conversely, you know, we've just seen this guy go out there against Jay Perrin and there was no strikes, right? Against C-Rod, there was no strikes. It's like, I'm, I'm basically going to make this about whether my grappling succeeds or fails is whether I succeed or fail. And this guy, Terrence Mitchell, has never been submitted, you know? So like, I, I get Alaska FC stinks and I get like, you know, this guy is, is not the same level. Of course, we just saw in his last fight, he was getting mangled on the ground, kind of gassed out a little bit there. But we saw the exact same thing against a 25-year-old. C-Rod is clearly very talented. He's a very good fighter. We knew that coming in. But we kind of saw in that fight some of the limitations of Raul Rosas Jr. And we don't know how that's going to affect the confidence of a young man. I mean, guys, like the, the volatility of somebody's like personality and stuff at 18 years of age could be very significant. So these are all just words of caution when we're talking about laying indications that are, again, like, the fight's already over. You're already reading Sunday morning's paper about Raul's finish in the first round. That's the most likely outcome, no doubt about it. You'd never get me arguing otherwise. But am I laying minus 800 after what I saw last time? No, no, I'm not. Uh, I think we need more, more proof of concept. So setup spot, clear setup spot from the UFC. This kid should win it. But the one thing, uh, I had one uh, guy, and I swear to God, this is true. I have a friend uh, that I used to go to school with in Ohio sent me a slip. And I, I wouldn't have believed it if he told me, but he sent me the slip. Volkov by sub, Sean Strickland money line. He parlayed the two together. And the only thing he sent me this week in advance of this uh, fight card. Oh God, uh, there we go. The, I, I think the uh, bookies just got the, my internet. The, Illuminati. the only thing he sent me, <laughs> the only thing he sent me on this fight card. And again, this is just a friend of mine. I'm not saying he's a perfect predictor or anything like that, but just a guy who hit an insane parlay the other day, a friend of mine, the only thing he threw out there, just un un unprovoked, was Terrence Mitchell by sub. You heard it here first. Terrence Mitchell is 8-0 career to the sub. And Raul Rosas Jr., by the way, was completely let off the hook by C-Rod in his last fight. Like, C-Rod, if he wanted to finish that fight, I feel like had every opportunity in rounds two and three. So I just think, like, I have enough hesitation to say, where, where is the parlay buster, right? I'm always looking around. This is one of those spots where I'm like, it's probably not Raul, right? Like this is a clear setup spot. The UFC's invested a lot of money. They're like, bro, don't fuck this up. Like we're trying to give you the lowest level guy we can. But I'm always just like, the bookmaker doesn't, you know, have a part-time job. They do this, they do this every day and they're willing to take shots where sometimes it works out for them. Sometimes they pay the public. But I'm just saying, this seems like a banana peel if I've ever seen one. The 18-year-old who just showed in his last fight, he's maybe not where we thought he was. And now he's back out here again at an insanely, you know, uh, Chalked out price way higher than Cameron Simon, right? Who was a little bit more proven in the UFC. So I don't know. I don't know. What do you think about this one, Wiz? You you bring up a lot of good points. Now, Raul Rosas in that last fight against C-Rod, who C-Rod, as you mentioned, is a stud. He's a guy who I could see crack into the top 10 in the next four to five years in the UFC. He's still very young, still has a lot to learn. Uh, Rosas has always been a guy who we've known to not have the best striking and striking defense. It's just plain and simple. The guy goes out there, he looks for those takedowns aggressively, and he hunts the sub immediately in round one. And he wasn't really pushed up until that last fight against C-Rod. So we saw how his cardio fares if he does not get to where he wants to get in round one. Uh, and 
quite frankly, Terrence Mitchell is just, with all due respect, not UFC level. And we all know that coming out of Alaska FC, which is widely regarded as the worst regional promotion out there. Alaska is not the, the region of the United States that you, you really want to get fighters from unless you're trying to set up these younger up-and-comers for an easy win. So Jared, the killer gorilla. They've got one, baby. Everybody for, gets one. <laughs> except for Jared Cannonier. Now, minus 800 gives us the indication that the UFC and the bookmakers expect Raul Rosas to get this done very quickly in the first round, probably by submission. Now, this fight is almost unbettable. The under one and a half is already laying juice. I believe it's minus 275 at the moment, and that is borderline unplayable. Sorry for the, the airplane in the background, but <laughs> I do think if you really just want to have something on this fight, if you want to have some sort of stake in this fight, I think Terrence Mitchell is going to be able to survive the first round. He's tough in his own right. He showed that he can defend some subs against Cameron Simon, who isn't regarded as the best submission grappler out there. I'll say that. But plus 700 doesn't hurt if you really want something to just to have a little piece of the pie in, in this fight. Round two sub plus 700. Round two KO plus 1800. I could see those both happening. But yeah, ultimately, surprise, surprise. I, I think Raul Rosas wins this one. Yeah, I'll just list off. I won't do this for every fight, but for uh, this fight in particular, I'll list off some of the props that stood out to me because you hit on a lot of them as well, Wiz. Uh, Rosas Jr. by KO. I felt like that could be a little bit wide here, depending on how this fight plays out. Uh, Rosas round two. It's like six to one. Again, for a guy who's heavily favored to win. And Mitchell probably gets finished in the first round more often than not. But again, you're playing into upside. You're playing into the fact that this guy went out there and gassed in his last fight. How often do we see fighters like I'm trying to prove a point. They drag it to the next round, like with a limp carcass of their opponent, like they're literally carrying them to the next round. So I just feel like, um, when you're looking at upside, that's another chance. Rosas decision. Call me crazy, but this is the bantamweight division and the favorite to win this fight, minus 800 is plus 950 to win the fight by decision. I mean, again, am I advocating like put a large portion of your bankroll? No, but like when I'm just looking at like ways to target value on this, again, these these kind of things just don't make mathematical sense over time. So um, I do think a guy like, uh, what's his name? Mitchell gets finished more often than not, no doubt about it. Two out of three losses are by finish. One is by decision. And again, this guy who just got beat by decision, who has a decision win on the regionals against some guy that none of you have ever heard of. I'll guarantee that. Like, I, I don't know. So again, that, that seemed wide to me. Goes to decision at plus 640 seems a touch wide to me. A lot of the props in this fight seem very weird to me. Um, and but, Liam, before you pass yeah, the mic to absolutely. my brother Jewish better, uh, one thing I want to mention here is these fights tend to be set up in a position by um, it's by the UFC and the books. They work hand in hand in a spot where, sure, it's not the co-main. It's right in the middle of the, the main card. And if if people are, are losing money on this card, they're going to look at this fight and they're going to be like, oh, there, there's no way Raul Rosas doesn't get this done in round one. Raul Rosas round one, no method, is minus 200. So people are going to try and chase. And time and time again, we've seen everybody that bets these round one props that are at heavy, heavy juice at minus 200 get burned time and time again. So I'm just throwing that out there. The only time I went to the well with one of those with like severe conviction 
was Bo Nickel against Jamie Pickett. That one even gave you a slight sweat, but I, I just would, I couldn't accept that minus 175 on fight to end round one was correct. I was like, there's no chance that that's correct. And that was a gift that will never come back, I don't think, um, as long as he's fighting the Jamie Pickett's of the world. But we have kept you waiting long enough, brother. Please give us the lowdown. Jewish better. What no, you got. no, bro, take your time. I was, I was listening. I'm the listener here as well. Um, but just real quick, uh, shout out to, well, thank you to Prediction Shark. <clears throat> All three of you have great viewpoints, Bled Creations. Good morning, great guests. I appreciate all y'all. Uh, definitely shout out. Um, that being said, now I might be the squarest square of all time. I, I, I just don't care. I think Raul Rosas gets the job done. How we think he's going to get the job done. Round one sub for the kid. Um, he had C-Rod in some compromising positions, and I think C-Rod got caught a little bit off guard. You know, this kid goes balls to the walls for the finish, man. He goes for inside round one, and he knows that's what he's trying to do all day. We saw Terrence Mitchell himself gas out in his last fight really badly after a few minutes. So um, I think the UFC knows what they're doing here, man. KO is definitely possible. Um, I'm going to take the books know what they're talking about ufc knows what they're doing you know that's why the odds are juiced they're juiced for a reason um and they attack you with the props as well e either way you know you're taking a risk so i'm just gonna go with the most likely outcome in my opinion uh which is the submission because he just attacks submission 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 that's his style and um what, what better time to happen than around one when they're dry and um Terrence Mitchell just got finished by ground and pound, I think, in that spot. Ruosis goes for the sub. He just didn't show any defense. So, square of all square plays. Give me the Mexican hat dance. Uh, Raul Rosas, crowd goes crazy. Keep the Mexican team going. Every Mexican that's, has won so far. That's what we call the hip-to-be square play of the day. So, yeah, I, I hear you, brother. No, Nothing wrong with that. I love a good hip-to-be square play every so often. I will just point out, Raul Rosas opened a minus 650 here, and there was actually some early action that came in uh, on the offshore market, pushed it to a minus 555. So some people came in on the Mitchell side, and then it's been pushed back out, right? And you, you have to know in this kind of spot, like it, it's one of the things I always talk about where sometimes it benefits you to bet openers, but a lot of times betting underdogs, like the best price is going to be closest to fight time just because of how parlay liabilities are structured. So it's just something from a long-term perspective to look out for um, where if you think like this is going to be a popular underdog where I have to get in early, that's one thing, right? You could have had Alexa Grasso at plus 225. Now you're getting her at plus 140, right? That's a different situation than, you know, uh, Josh Fremd or somebody where Roman Kopilov's coming off a bunch of knockouts in the first round. So if you want to bet Josh Fremd, sit on your hands, be a little bit patient because the, the number will continue to improve these kind of spots. So uh, just something from a long-term perspective, I think that's worth talking about there. But in any case, clear setup fight, massive favorite. I'm not telling you guys, you know, uh, Terrence Mitchell, the most live dog on the car. I just feel like these are the numbers again that I don't play in MMA. I talked about last week. I was like, you're just not going to get wealthy playing minus 700 in UFC title fights. Again, too stupid to take my own advice, but it's just the kind of thing where we have to relearn these lessons every so often. Cause it's just like the, the competitive nature of this game at the highest levels 
you, you don't want to be playing with those kind of margins. Like you want a minus 120 that looks like a minus 500, right? You don't want a minus 500 that looks like a minus 580. It's like, all right, well, now we're just playing with a bunch of very thin margins where a couple of these wrong in a row and, and I'm not really getting the value. So a couple of things to think about, but um, in any case, we can move to this next fight here. And I would call this the people's main event, ladies and gentlemen. We've got Jack Della Madalena taking on Kevin Trailblazer, Big Mouth, whatever the hell you want to call him, Holland. That's what we know uh, is going down. And I'll tell you guys, I have the, the metrics, right? I put out all the clips of the different fights on my YouTube channel. It's something I just started doing this week to try and get it out there, get the world out to more people. And when I did, I was surprised to find out the main event, guys, was not the most clicked on video. The most clicked on video by far was this co-main event, guys. People want to talk about Jack Della. They want to talk about uh, you know, our guy, Kevin Holland. These are two guys that attract opinions. People want to talk about these guys. They're fun. They bring an entertaining style. They got some interesting things to say. They're not afraid to get out there and put it on the line against tough guys. So what more can you say? As a fight fan, you love this kind of fight. The UFC put together a banger here where you talk about maybe it's not the deepest card. Maybe it's not a perfect card, but they match made it accordingly. They have a theme. It seems fun. And then this fight, which doesn't have any connection to the card, is just a perfect action fight that's relevant, that matters to the division, and that people really care about. So I feel like this one kind of hits the nail on the head. And I'm going to kick this over to my guest first. So Jewish better, why don't you start us off, brother? How do you feel about this matchup? And what do you think, uh, you know, between these two sides? You got a minus 150 favorite and a plus 130 uh, comeback on Kevin Holland here. Yeah, I just think this fight is pretty pretty even um for the most part i think the one thing i will say is with the antics of kevin holland and we saw this a little bit with we've seen this with colby covington we've seen this with sean strickland the guys who talk a little bit much sometimes people underrate their fight skills right and we see kevin holland do it inside the octagon so it's a little bit more prominent sometimes to the point where he's a minus 140 against um, michael chiesa i don't think you're going to get a better line than that all year um and I, I was all in on that fight there, man. And I've been able to cap Kevin Holland pretty well. I do think he wins in the spot here. Um, I'm not as bullish as I was on Michael Chiesa for a lot of reasons. That being the opponent on the other side. This guy's nose is all crooked, man. And the, for a reason, this dude's pretty damn durable. He has been finished once a really long time ago uh, back on the regionals. So it's not out of the round that he gets finished. And I've seen him get rocked. I, I mean, I've seen him get hit at least for a fact, hard in the UFC by guys like Basel Hafez, Pete Rodriguez. Um, but he's able to keep eating what these guys have and go forward and push into them. I'm just worried that Kevin Holland might be the most powerful guy that he's faced yet with the most punching power. That right cross has uh, a ton of power. We've, we've seen him put guys out with it as well um, or rock them into shooting in a submission attempts. So, uh, I got to go with Kevin Holland here, but I think that the main thing that I want to push at the end of the day is the the weapons. I think Jack Della has body shots and head shots with the hands, maybe some leg kicks, but I think Holland checks the leg kicks pretty well. I think the head shots are going to be hard, so he's going to have to hit him to the body and put Kevin Holland out that way. While on the other side, I could see Kevin Holland hitting an elbow from the clinch. I could see him hitting an elbow from standing. I could see him hitting a knee on the way in. Um, I could see him hitting a high kick. Um, and I could see him hitting the right cross for the finish button. So I'm going to take uh, Kevin Holland here. I know people keep pushing the reach, the reach. But I think this is going to be just an all-out war. Both guys are going to be throwing shots back and forth. 
And I think um, all that being said, I'm going to go dog or pass here. And I think that long right hand of Kevin Holland is going to eventually find the mark. Um, give me Kevin Holland for one unit at plus 124. Uh, I think that's a solid money line bet this week. Um, and we don't have much choices, right? We got to find value in money line somewhere. Um, give me Kevin Holland here, man. I think he has all the anthropomorphic advantages. Did I use that one right? Indeed, my brother. Indeed. I love to the, hear it. The, the last one, the, the the most important one, too, and the last one I will say, I think Kevin Holland has really good cardio. I think his cardio is good. I don't think it's like, you know, insane. You know, I felt like he slowed down against Wonder Boy, a couple other guys, but I don't think that his cardio is is bad at all. I think he can compete very hard over 15 minutes for sure. Uh, but like the Darren Stewart fight, for example, one of the ones where, you know, he did like spend himself a little bit too early in that fight. I feel like he's gotten more experience since then. And I feel like a lot of that was middleweight, you know, whereas at welterweight, I think it takes a little bit more lifestyle commitment, a little bit more dieting. Yeah, a bit he, more laid off the, he laid off the other thing. He laid oh, off the other he? thing. Did he? Oh, uh, that's I mean, what he now, said now, now I have to take away from the handicap. Minus 5%. I mean, this guy is not even using his PEDs wisely. But Wiz, what do you think about this fight, brother? How do you feel uh, about this matchup? So I'm going to start this off by, by saying I know some really, really sharp people on both sides of this fight that I, I respect to, to a degree that they might be able to sway my own opinion at points, which it, I find a little hard at times. But sometimes you have to, to lay on your network because your network is your net worth at the end of the day. And the way I look at this fight, there's a couple of things. Sure, Kevin Holland has the, the reach advantage in this fight. Uh, Jack Della, we know he's probably one of the best pocket boxers that Holland has faced as well. But the one thing I think that sets this fight uh, apart between both fighters is the grappling. And Holland hasn't shown the the ability or the willingness to go to it all that often, but he does have it in his back pocket. And I think where Jack Della might have some trouble here is the length along with just the, the overall dexterity when it comes to the striking from, from his opponent. Because when you look at the, the record on, on the side of Jack Della, sure, it, it looks great in, in terms of all these wins and finishes, but who has he faced? In his last fight, on short notice, a guy coming in in nine days, and Basil Hafez, who went in there and put on a hellacious pace with the grappling, yeah, Jack Della did show some time, some signs of fatigue in that third round. And and me personally, I kind of thought that Basil won that fight. Now, that was the first fighter to really take it to JDM. And it wasn't in the striking. When you look at the strikers he's faced, like Pete Rodriguez and all these other guys, they're they're mainly power strikers who who only know how to wing shots and don't throw anything down the middle. Uh, down the middle. And that's something that's concerning. Every time we see a up-and-coming prospect who has all these finishes face their first real competent striker who can throw and land down the middle straight down the pipe which as we all know is the most powerful of all the the hand strikes it causes some trouble and with kevin holland here he, he's someone who who does find success with that right cross as jewish better was mentioning earlier and he's put a lot of people down whether it's knockdowns or just complete knockouts with that right cross i think that's what's really going to give jack uh, trouble here, just the straight punches and the counters from Kevin Holland. 
sure, Jack is a really good pocket boxer and he can land those nasty body shots, which he's finished people with before. But I think Kevin Holland is a, is a really durable guy in there who shown some signs of fatigue last time out against uh, when he fought Wonderboy. But we have to remember that he broke his hand later on in that second round. So when, when you lose all that adrenaline, when that adrenaline dump hits you after an injury mid-fight, it's really going to take a toll on you mentally, physically, and cardio-wise. So you, you have to take that into factor here. And just the way he put out Michael Chiesa last time, it, it showed that he is mentally recovered from that loss, and he showed some sort of maturity. The one hesitation I have here is his back-and-forth talk about moving back to 185 and having fun, not being able to, uh, not having to cut all this weight down to 170, even though he's mentioned himself that 170 is the weight class where he feels that he performs the best. With all that being said, I'm going to have to take the plus money here on the underdog here in Kevin Holland. I'm going to be waiting until uh, the day of the fights. I do think this line increases and inflates just a little bit more, closer to around the, one plus, uh, the plus 145 to plus 150 range. But yes, I, I do like Kevin Holland a lot in this matchup. Yeah, and we're going to make it a unanimous panel once again. And uh, this is one where, listen, it didn't feel good, right? But I've been against Jack Della before. I bet Angelusa. He had him in a close submission attempt. It didn't go my way. But in that fight, I felt like Angelusa just showed that he had some skill, but he's not a great finisher, right? And what did we just see against Reese McGee? Like, we, we've seen further affirmation of that. He's a good fighter. He could keep it competitive enough, but he just doesn't have the greatest finishing instincts. That's not what he's known for at the UFC level. And even a little bit prior, he had some knockout power, but he just hasn't always translated as a finisher. So I feel like you look at a fight like this and you say to yourself, man, Kevin Holland's fought a murderer's row at 185. People had a very hard time putting this guy away. I bet Derek Brunson, speaking of the legend, right? Uh, shout out to Derek Brunson. Unfortunately, been let go from the UFC, but Derek Brunson, guys, um, I bet him plus 1450 by sub against Kevin Holland. And he had him in a, a head and arm choke for like two minutes and the guy didn't tap. So like both of these guys are very tough. They're hard to put away with subs. But when you've seen Kevin Holland out grappled in the UFC, it's by black belts. It's by guys that are really high level um, that are able to, or excuse me, you know, they're either black belts or they're much stronger and they're Marvin Vittori, right? Like most of these guys have been very high level, prolific black belts. And then we've seen times where he's hurt them off, off his back, where he's landed big shot. He hurt Derek Brunson badly in that fight, almost finished him on several occasions. So I feel like this guy has always been dangerous in every fight. And he was too small to go with these guys at 185. He's got a win over Jeff Neal. He's got really solid wins as a welterweight in his career, but he came into the UFC up weight classes. So he kind of just stuck around having fun, having the life. But I feel like he's put it a little bit more serious in these last couple of camps. And listen, the not submitting Wonder Boy is something that will always, you know, make me second guess Kevin Holland because he should have submitted Wonder Boy, but they're friends, right? And like sometimes things just go a little bit sideways when friends are fighting, you know. Take that for whatever you want to take it for. But it just looked a little bit like he let him off the hook. He just didn't submit him when he could have. So overall, I feel like this is just a guy to Kevin Holland. You know, if he could submit this guy, I feel like he will. And here's the one thing about Jack's game that I find very concerning here. What has he been put in a bunch of compromised spots with? Front headlocks. Like he was put into a very dangerous head and arm situation against Angelusa, and Angelusa couldn't finish a sandwich. So it's like, all right, no problem. I just ride this one out and then buck up to my feet. But Kevin Holland, he's got very long arms. He could potentially go from here, 
you know, where it's somewhat tight to that rear naked choke grip on a head and arm choke and get the finish. Let's talk about the fact that Ramzan Amiv, who's like a split decision machine in the UFC, had this guy in a choke within the first minute and a half. And then he had also, guys, a red like blotch this big on his body coming into that fight. Still, I've never gotten an explanation for what was going on there. That's it looked like a medical incident. He got hit with a body shot and took a knee. Like the guy just didn't look like he was prepared to fight and he almost submitted him in the first round. So again, you look at that Kamzat Chimaev fight and Kevin Holland offered like maximal resistance on short notice at 180 pounds. And he was looking like he was competitive in some of those scrambles and just got outsized, out physical, outmanned. Now he's at 170 pounds. Now he's not going against the guy who missed weight the day before and all this stuff. I feel like this is going to be a good performance from Kevin Holland. So could he lose here? Yeah, sure. But he's a difficult guy to knock out. Like he's the one thing I, I have as a question mark about Kevin is will his chin continue to hold up at 170? Because that's my only concern. He is cutting weight now. He is a big enough guy. He's tall. He's long. Could he get clipped on the chin and get finished? Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. But outside of that, and that's again, something that hasn't happened very frequently. I like proof of concept. I like to see you get finished a lot before, even in that fight where he's just getting teed off on, you know, with very little defense when he's clearly exhausted against Wonderboy, he's still not going down. Like the guy is a savage. He has a very good chin. So when I look at this fight, I think that both guys have some grappling upside. That's the other thing I'll say. Cause the one thing is Kevin Holland will push grappling in some fights. But if he doesn't get you out of there, sometimes he just will like start to concede. You know, he's got good skills on offense, but you look at that Brendan Allen fight. He's got great positions. He looks like he's about to submit him. He's got the back and then he loses position and he's like, all right, you got me. And then he just gave it up and he just let Brendan Allen get to his back. So I feel like that's my concern with Kevin is like when things start to go sideways, like in that Wonder Boy fight, you know, I feel like we've sometimes seen him check out a little bit. But when this fight starts off, He's a shit talker. He's a big thrower of power on the feet. He's got the more dangerous submission game when they're fresh, in my humble opinion. I think Kevin Holland's a live underdog here at the plus 130 tag. So um, probably going with big mouth here. And that yeah, takes dude. us, boys, to the – oh, please, do you have something to add, brother? No, 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 I agree with you. I think the one last thing I did want to say is, like, everyone talks about, like, JDM and the power, right, the power. But I think Kevin Holland's a crazy power puncher, especially at 170. Like, just think about, like, lay on your back right now. Anybody who gets the chance, go lay on your back and try and throw a punch off, off of your back. Like, how do you knock somebody out with a punch off of your back? Just ex explain that to me. So, um, everyone talks about the power of JDM. I think Kevin Holland has power, too. And not to mention, Jacare Souza, during that fight, was regarded as one of the, having one of the most durable chins in the UFC at that division. So just something to keep in mind. For sure. And I feel like Kevin Holland, very good fighter overall. You know, he's had some tough matchups. He's had some wins, some losses, some ups some downs. Doesn't always take it as serious as you want. But again, if he did, then he probably wouldn't be, you know, a plus money underdog in this spot. I feel like this is probably a pick em fight, you know, more often than not. Um, so any plus money here is probably the side. Um, good fight, good scrap. I'm excited to see it. And if Jack Della proves me wrong, I'll take my hat off to him. You know, what else do I say? But it's just like Kevin Holland's been in there with really serious guys. They haven't had an easy time putting him away. So give me Kevin Holland. Give me big mouth, baby. Next up, 
We've got Alexa Grasso taking on Valentina Shevchenko. It shall be done again on Saturday night, guys. The rematch. Last time out, the Roto Grinders prediction. Alexa Grasso by sub in round three. This close, right? She had that guillotine she was starting to go for. I rewatched the fight today. It wasn't that close, right? But in round four, that's when she was able to strap it in there, that rear naked choke. And my guy, Jewish Better, and I were trying to explain to some people on Twitter today. Um, you know, when you look at this kind of uh, choke, right? People were talking about it's not even under the chin. Y'all go train a little bit, right? Because it doesn't matter if it's under your chin or not. If somebody has a really good squeeze and they get a choke over your face, it's going to create an insane amount of pressure. It could break your jaw, right? So I feel like people that haven't trained maybe don't understand that. But like tucking your chin is like part of the defense. That's like to stop it from finishing you immediately so you can continue to do other defense. It's not like, oh, okay, no problems now. Like now just crush my face. So that's the the difference, right? You can do a, a neck crank, try and pull somebody's neck. Uh, that's oftentimes from guillotines, things like that. Uh, pulling backwards from a seated position. There's a lot of ways to crank the neck, but that's not what we're doing here. We're crushing the face and the jaw um, and covering the nose. You can smother, right? If you get somebody in that instep right here and just put it across their whole face, you make them uncomfortable, smother tap them. Like that's what you're trying to do. It's about, you know, aggression and control and making somebody quit, right? Like at the end of the day, you could be as technical as you want, or you could squeeze the hell out of somebody's head and make them quit. And both of them work. Both of them are very effective. Need I remind you. So I think when we look at a fight uh, like that, you know, Alexa Grasso on that night wanted it a little bit better, had a little bit better, um, you know, planning and preparation, I would say, because she took advantage of her opportunities better than Valentina. I watched the fight back and guys, I had Alexa Grasso on the money line. I picked her outright to win the fight, but I just watched it back. And I, I did say to myself, man, this is not a fight where I come in like, oh my God, Alexa Grasso's the lock of all locks. I do think that was a fight where Valentina showed she's not completely washed out by Alexa Grasso. She got a bunch of takedowns. When you look at who was the more effective top player, it's not, it's actually not close. The more effective top player was Valentina Shevchenko. She was able to pass the guard. She was able to hold top position from side control. She was looking for the crucifix in the early rounds. But what happened? Daniel Cormier made a good point on commentary. She was controlling a lot with those very tight holds. She's trying to pin her down. She did a much better job pinning than Alexa Grasso, but she used a lot of energy. And Chael Sonnen talks about this concept, and I think it's really smart, so I bring it up a lot. But it's not always the fight that is the hardest. It's the fight that you expect to be easy, that now it's way harder than you thought, where things start to go sideways. Think about Juliana Pena, Amanda Nunes, where right off the bat, you know, Everything looks hunky-dory. Amanda's out there trying to do her thing. But then things start to go sideways a little bit, and they go completely off the rails. But then they did the rematch, and the better skills, the better uh, you know, preparation from the champion in the rematch prevailed, right? She just absolutely beat the tar out of her. And I, it was one of the more foolish bets I've ever made, right? I, I chased the Pena line down from plus 700 to plus 250, and I bet the plus 250. I missed the plus 700. And I got absolutely steamrolled. It looked like the easiest bet of the year. Amanda Nunes minus a thousand. She should have been. Yeah, I mean, you guys are right. Like, absolutely. So sometimes there is a market overcorrection. Some of the factors are different here, right? Where number one, this is no Juliana Pena, in my humble opinion, right? I do think of Alexa Grasso as a very talented girl who's always had a future in this division. You can find a tweet from me uh, in 2022 that says, 
I think that Valentina Shevchenko, her last year's champion is 2022 because of the girls like Blanchfield and Grasso and I listed off the contenders that are just lurking in the wings that are all young. And she's not, she's 35, but here's the conundrum I have boys. I feel like the UFC really desperately wants Valentina Shevchenko back at 135 pounds. And I don't know if it's better for her to go as a double champion or to lose this fight and then move up to a division that is completely void of contenders. And by the way, she has an easy claim to the title opportunity because she beat Juliana Pena when they fought, right? She has uh, competitive fights with the GOAT Amanda Nunes, where most of these women got absolutely steamrolled and smoked. So I feel like she has an instant credibility at the weight class above win or loss in this fight. But also she's an all-time great and she's taken on a girl who could easily be rebuilt, who could fight for titles many times more. So it's just not a, a fight that's so cut and dry to me. And last time, why was it cut and dry? Because she's declining clearly. And you're giving a, a plus 650 is what I bet on the money line for a title fight. Again, I should have system bet Sean Strickland. I'm kicking myself like a fool for not having done it. You understand? But I'm looking at this and I'm saying, this isn't the same kind of opportunity. It's not to say Alexa Grasso won't win. If you watch my first look, that was my initial impression here. But watching back the fight, I always go back to the tape and, and see what the tape tells me. I, I said that I thought Leon Edwards was going to beat Kamaru Usman because he won the first round in their first meeting all the way back, and he had only gotten better. He won the first round in all their fights. He was better when they're fresh. Like, that's just a fact. So when people want to discount these kind of things, sometimes you can see it on the tape. Like, there's just things that you can pick up. And it's not everything, though. Valentina gassed out in that fight. There is no doubt in my mind. She absolutely gassed. If you guys watch it back, you'll see the same thing. In my opinion, it was a clear cardio dynamic. When she was fresh, them takedowns were easy, brother. She was going, huh, give me that. Takedown, pass the guard, move to position. She looked like she was levels ahead. But then what happened? As she started to slow down, the takedowns weren't there so easy. She started to get pieced up more on the feet. Here's the other thing that I haven't heard referenced much this week that I saw on my study. And again, people can disagree. If you guys disagree, I, I hope you do. So we have a fruitful conversation. If not, that's fine too. But it's like, when I looked at this, I feel like Alexa Grasso hurt her in the first round and pretty substantially. And she had to recover there. So when you talk about why, why did Valentina Shevchenko, who's normally very prepared, normally goes five rounds, normally goes to a decision, no problem. Why did she gas? Number one, it was a harder fight than she thought. Number two, she got buzzed in the early going, so she had to recover. And number three, she wrestled way more than she normally does against somebody that offered her more resistance and wanted it, frankly, right? Was Talia Santos the, the best fighter in the world? No, she, she's a fine fighter. She's a good fighter. She's talented. But why did I think she was going to compete with uh, Shevchenko? Because she's hungrier. She needs the money more. She needs the title more. She wants it better. She's strong as hell. This girl's normally fighting soccer moms. Again, no disrespect, but just like, Talking about who's in the division, who's around girls that are 38, 35, like, yeah, those are age contemporaries. We're talking now about younger contenders. So those are the things that made me think Valentina's on the precipice of falling off. But we've also seen that there are champions, very good ones like Amanda Nunes, that when they get pushed off that, that uh, top of the ladder, they come back with a vengeance. They pull the person back down and beat them from, uh, you know, where they thought they were. And We've seen that like that exact storyline play out, right? The shocking upset, the submission, and then it all went crashing down. And now she retires, rides off into the sunset. Nobody was asking about the trilogy, right? It just was done there. And we saw the same thing. Adesanya loses the first three iterations. He gets the big knockout. There was no more, uh, let, oh, no, let's do They were like, no, no, let's move weight classes and, and close the book on this. So 
I feel like the UFC is having a little bit of rematch fatigue, but I look at this and I just say like, I'm puzzled. I, I feel like the way that I would get involved with a fight like this personally is to be contrarian. That's the way I am. And what do I mean by that? I mean, what did my tape study tell me? It told me that Alexa Grasso could win this fight via knockout. I think that she hurt Valentina in the first fight. I think Valentina uh, was not liking how the striking exchanges were going, which is why she started to force wrestling exchanges. You heard Alexa Grasso, if you guys listened to the press conference today, say, you know, you talked about you're, you're a 13-time Muay Thai world champion or whatever she said. She's like, but you didn't want to keep striking with me. All you wanted to do is rest. And, and that's true. If you go back and watch, by rounds three and four, she was like, F all this. I don't want to strike no more. I'm going to wrestle. And she was starting to get touched up a little bit, which is why she created the opportunity for Grasso, right? Goes for the bad spin. She was trying to get space. She was trying to get this girl off her and get a little bit of distance. Because normally, girls are very hesitant to close distance on her. They don't want to get close. This girl doesn't feel that way. She's more than willing to do that. Here's the other thing I think is going underlooked. And then I'm going to pass it off to my great guest here. Valentina Shevchenko can win this fight by submission, guys. Do not think that she cannot. She is not a bad fighter on the ground. I've said she's the most overrated uh, women's MMA grappler uh, probably in history. I've said that before. But then you look at this fight and she's chalked to win. The fight is like, you know, pick them whether it's going to go the distance or not. And she's plus 850 to win by sub. Who won more of the grappling exchanges in the last fight? I think anybody that grapples would tell you it, it was not close. It was Shevchenko won more of the exchanges, clearly. But the exchange that mattered, the more opportunistic submission threat was Alexa Grasso. That's still true. I think she's a more opportunistic submission player. But who has more chance? If somebody dominated this fight on the mat, clearly, cleanly on the mat, I would think it was Valentina more often than not. And that is me as a critic of her. I just rewatched the tape and I can't, I can't unsee what I saw. The takedowns were coming very easy. Maybe she fixes that. She looks like she did some weightlifting, right? Alexa Grasso looks bricked the hell up. And Narrative Nation, guys, Narrative Nation says Alexa Grasso wins the fight. But it also says that feels too easy. Whoo! I said a lot. I want to hear what you guys have to say. My brother Wiz from another. Let's hear it, brother. What you got? You you pretty much summed, summed out a lot of the points that I've had uh, to a T, to be quite frank. Uh, so I'm not going to go ahead and, and repeat what you already broke down so, so excellently. <laughs> but I'm going to bring up a couple of other things that that I've noticed uh, in that first fight or the only fight that they they've had. We saw in the, in the striking realm. Yeah. In the first round, Grasso definitely hit her with a clean shot and it, it dazed Valentina. When that happens, it's another form of adrenaline dump, similar to how I was mentioning the, the Holland handbrake. And it's hard to recover from that, from the when you get hit with that in the first round. It's just, Plain and simple. See Izzy on Saturday. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That is a great point. Now, I'm not going to say that this is going to happen again. I'm not going to predict that that's going to happen again. So if you take that out of the equation, the rest of the striking exchanges, I don't think were that close. Sure, Grasso had a couple of moments in round two and round one where she landed a clean flush combo every here and there. But primarily, it was Valentina dominating in the striking and then finding the takedowns. I do think that it's going to play out the same exact way. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> awesome clowns for that. Shout out to chat. Sharpest, sharpest chat in the game. 
<laughs> we we just brought down the collective IQ one point for everybody. God bless. That's funny. Um, but back to my point here, I, I do think that when you see a, a massive favorite, such a massive favorite around plus, I'm sorry, minus 700 to minus 800 and it almost inflated to 900 and a thousand at certain books go from, from that all the way down to at a point where you can get her at minus 145. That's just a huge market overcorrection. And I try to find these spots often because nine times out of 10, these market overcorrections do not favor the bookies. I'm not saying in terms of actual bets cashed versus lost, but uh, in terms of what actually played out in the fight. So I, I personally am targeting Valentina Shevchenko in this fight. Uh, I got in at plus, uh, sorry, minus 157. I just think that the, the, the price indication in the first fight to what it is right now is a little bit too aggressive of a correction in terms of a market standpoint. And I'm not saying Alexa Grasso cannot win this fight, but when, when you rewatch the tape multiple times on, on the last one, I could handedly say that Valentina was up 2-1 in, uh, in that fight. And in the fourth round, I personally had her winning that fourth round up until the, the slip with the, with the spinning kick, and which led to the, the back take. I don't think she's going to go for these spinning kicks again. I don't think she wants to put herself in that kind of danger anymore because if she does that same exact back take into the rear naked choke, can simply happen again. Uh, but yeah, just in terms of a market standpoint, I have to take the the favorite here in Valentina Shevchenko. And I think she, she comes back similar to how Amanda Nunes came back. Uh, not completely wash Alexa Grasso out of the water, but uh, puts on a dominant performance. So there you have it. Some uh, slight dissension on the panel. I'm certainly not bullish with my take, uh, but my guy Wiz coming in with a bet here on the favorite. Um, and I, I understand the rationale. Like I can understand people playing both sides in this fight. The last time, if you were laying it with, with Valentina, I would have told you, I, I just, I didn't agree with your process. Right. But like this time, uh, how can I blame you? You know, it's like, th this is a, a clear, um, discount on where you would normally get her. right i believe her average price in the ufc is minus 445 and when you talk about um her production as a favorite what's ironic is that she's turned a very small profit right like you basically just got your money back if you've bet on her every single time out but that's the fact that she even lost as a massive favorite last time out and still you made some money betting her if you bet her the whole time because she's been so consistent so overall uh very impressive as a favorite is valentina shevchenko but can that trend continue? We asked the Jewish better. <laughs> no, I I think well, let's go to your first point about the the Marinaga choke. Like I remember exactly where I was that day. I was at the bookie, and uh, maybe like one person in there had Grasso. Right? It was pretty. Everyone was pretty bullish that Shevchenko was gonna finish her. So I don't know if. Um, like a lot of people are saying the over four uh over four and a half. The only reason that's such a good line is because the first fight ended inside the distance. No, I think they thought the it was probably the same line. I think they thought the first fight could end inside the distance too, but they didn't think it was gonna be Grasso. They probably thought it was gonna be Shevchenko, right? Um but I remember seeing her not fighting the hands. That's the rear naked choke defense right there. You gotta fight the hands. That's the first thing. First and foremost, you can't just think you're going to tuck your chin and someone's not going to eventually create the pressure. Like my man Liam, great breakdown, said to crush your jaw or even just be over the artery and 
choke you out. So, um, people are mean. This is MMA, man. People are mean and nasty. They're going to train to crush your face in. Um, I think this is a good fight, though. I think it's pretty accurately lined. And this is one of those ones where I thought at first, Brasso, this is a clear spot for her. They're giving her the um, Mexican belt. It's Mexican independence. I've already taken every single Mexican. But what better ass fucking would it be from the book? Can I use that word? The yes, sir. Ass fucking from the bookies. Would it be to have every single Mexican fighter win and then pull it, pull the plug on you on the main event? Like that first close, that first fight was close until it wasn't, right? But I think the thing was, like you said, is the grappling success. And I don't know if this short period of time, if Grasso could fill those holes and if Shevchenko's prepared to wrestle for five rounds now. She could have the cardio to do so. We've seen her do it in the past. So um, I think Shevchenko's the sharp bet here, guys. And um, if you throw her in the end of this big parlay, like if you just took all the people I said, you could always hedge out at the end. So I have no stake on this single bet-wise. Originally, I thought Grasso, though, pre-film, doing some more film. I'm back on the Shevchenko side. And I will say with those type of bets, especially as of recently, I've done pretty good where I've just hopped off the train onto the other side. Um, Because sometimes on paper you think, you know, this is a a clear setup spot for Grasso to get a win. Shevchenko's on the decline. And then when you go back and do the film, it's like Aljamain Sterling. He should take down um, O'Malley. Jan was able to take down O'Malley. He took down Jan. It's a pretty clear spot. And you go back and do the film, and you're like, damn, this dude's quick. Lateral movement, these things exist. I think O'Malley wins, right? Or uh, Ciro gone, right? Uh, versus Spivak. Dude has no grappling, blah, blah, blah. Go back and watch the film, and it's like, oh, he's going to butcher this dude. Uh, this line's way off. So uh, this is another one of those bets. I don't know if that counts for anything, but I was on the Grasso originally. I thought of, uh, she was getting the better of the stand-up exchanges film from what I remembered then I went back and watched and it wasn't a wash at all it was pretty low volume Shevchenko had some success herself so I think this is a complete market overreaction as you guys said not saying that Grasso could not win uh, and it would be crazy to see like you know her win Mexican Independence Night it would be a big win but I think this is going to be a big public bet on a main event that everybody's itching to bet where we don't have a lot of like we had a lot of parlays right we could get parlay pieces or props where's the where's the What's up, my dude, Uncle Wheezy, late night Molly Crew. <laughs> How are you doing? But um, yeah, I just think this is gonna be a huge public play for the underdog. Um, not a lot of money line bets on this card that you could take besides the Holland fight, besides the Cortez fight. You're gonna have to play a lot of props. So I think this is gonna be a heavily bet on fight for obvious reasons. It's the main event, um, and I think a lot of people are gonna take that sprinkle on that dog. Uh, so sharp side is gonna be Shevchenko here. That's all I got for you guys, man. That's all I got. I love it. Here's what I'll say. The one other thing I'll point out is the market has at least shown some Grasso respect, right? Like if this number was Grasso, you know, plus 250 and everybody's betting her and they're just like, please continue to do so. We're happy to take all the bets. You know, sometimes the bookmaker will just expose themselves a little bit to risk when they have a really strong side. Um, you know, I think of the Islam Mahashev fight, for example, with Charles Oliveira. They took on a tremendous amount of risk that night because they're pretty damn sure. They're like, you know, this is a going out of business sale and we, we're we selling, you know. Um, and I feel like 
those are the kind of spots where, um, you know, the bookmaker kind of shows their hand a little bit by not respecting all the money coming in. That tells me, I'm like, man, they don't even like they they're not going to budge with this one. They're, they're like, no, no, no. We, we feel how we feel, uh, you know, screw you guys. But in this kind of spot, they're at least addressing like, all right, yeah, we're taking some money on Grasso. And I do think this is going to attract two way sharp action. That's the thing that makes it a really tricky fight, right? You got narrative nation betters um, that are going to come in on the Grasso side. No doubt about it. UFC Noche, the belt, like you mentioned, here's the other thing, guys. The UFC invested a bunch of money in a performance institute in Mexico, right? Like, are they in the business of just funneling money out the door to lose it? You know, I don't think so. Uh, they've got Zhang Wei Li. They've got a Chinese connection, right? They've got the UFC PI over there. These are important things to their brand and their business model. And it's going to be harder to convince people, hey, come to our performance institute, become a world champion. If every time they get a champion, they lose the belt. So these are a couple of things that roll around in my mind. I try and think of every angle, but in any case, Valentina, legend of the sport they could easily go to three matches we've seen that many times uh this could be the defining trilogy of their careers this and that but it would be a knock on her legacy in terms of valentina shevchenko if she gets beat and especially if she gets finished twice in a row here by admittedly a younger very talented fighter but a fighter who just last fight people thought she was a massive favorite to defeat so i think this is a fascinating fight and it's a fascinating card guys there you have it uh our bets and banter on the table for you. So I hope that you guys have enjoyed. It's been a blast talking with these guys, two very sharp fellas. It's been a blast talking with all the great people in the chat that we've had rocking and rolling with us from the very beginning here. So as I kick it over to my guys here to let you know where you could find more great work from each of them, I just want to say thank you all for being here. God bless. Enjoy those fights. And if you could be so kind before you get out of here, drop that like to let us know that you were here. Make sure you find me on Twitter at Liam Picks Fights and spread a little love because uh, your boy is just this close to 10,000. And that's a goal that I'd like to crush before this card starts. So Thank you, everybody. Please, if you can, my brother Wiz, let the people know where can they find the great work you're doing, my man. Absolutely. First and foremost, Jewish better, Olympics fights, my guys. As always, it's always a pleasure breaking down fights with y'all, and thank you for having me on the show on such short notice. Um, you can find all my stuff at Wiz Does on Twitter and on YouTube. I uh, just recorded a NFL show for week one yesterday, so it's already up on the YouTube and uh, my one-minute breakdowns will be live tomorrow night, late night around this time. So don't miss that. And then uh, one last thing. Fight news coming soon. Hey, let's go. Our brother Wiz is getting out there. Uh, the man in the arena. And he's doing a great job on the content front as well. So make sure that you show love. I am going to have to edit the description, guys, because our guy Wiz, late notice replacement, right? We gave him the call. We were like, hey, kid, your time in the UFC is now. And then, bang, we hang up the phone on him, and he was here right there on short notice. So can't say enough good things. Thank you. Twitter. Exactly, exactly. We called Big Mouth Wiz. I'm kidding, my brother. Thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure, bro. Uh, Jewish better. Could you let the people know where they could find you? And in this case, we did know he was going to be here. So his information is linked in that description as well for your convenience. Yeah. Follow my Instagram at MMA Jewish better. Uh, that's where you could probably contact me and I'll answer you the quickest. Hell yeah. So there you have it guys. All the other stuff that you need for Jewish better is in the description below. Um, did you have more to add, please? Yeah. 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 Last thing I wanted to say, Sorry about this, but the dude said in my mic, oh, the mic is too low. The mic is too high.
what is it, guys? You got to decide. No, I hope it's all good now. Andy L, the Jewish better is sharp. Love your breakdowns, bro. Sometimes I feel like I don't have enough to say because at the end of all that, I'm like, man, they just they just hit every single point. But like, my mind's moving a mile a minute at the end of the day. I'm, I'm trying to watch all the film I can. I see the adjustments. I think that's one thing I didn't mention maybe in the main event is the adjustments. Um, you know, the southpaw stands definitely, I thought, caught Valentina off guard. The body kicks could be a, a, something that Valentina could maybe use more of in this spot. But at the end of the day, I just try and get it out as quick as possible, give you the info that I think is the most important. And uh, that's all I could hope to do because we're just trying to make money at the end of the day. That's what Jews do the best. So love me or hate me, all of you in the comments. I wish you luck this week. I love it. And, yeah, the thing is, at the end of the day, guys, you don't have to agree with us on every single pick, right? There's a reason there's a market. Everybody can have their say. So we wish you all the best of luck, whether you're uh, riding with us, tail, fade, or indifferent. Uh, we appreciate you guys being here, sharing your opinion, sharing your thoughts along the way. If you guys have additional thoughts that you haven't gotten off your chest yet, you can go ahead and do that in the comment section below. I'll try and get to as many as possible before fight time. We've been getting a lot of comments, a lot of interaction, so I try and show uh, love to everybody as much as possible. So if you guys have pertinent questions, if I haven't gotten to them yet, go ahead and drop those below this video. And other than that, guys, all the same places you can find me in the description. That's it. God bless. Good luck. We'll see you next time. Come back next week. We'll have all the same fun again. Take care, everybody. See ya. Oi vey.